Hello and welcome back to MetaStation for the continuation of our season one recaps over hiatus. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. And today we are talking about episode 110, I Am Become Death. Which is honestly, I think, one of my favorite episodes of season one and has some of my favorite moments from the whole series. I would agree with that. I think it is it is certainly one of the most thrilling episodes of season one, just in terms of how it kind of like builds to this really heart-pounding conclusion. Yeah. It also, you know, even though it's all sort of very dramatic and very sort of like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, are they going to blow up this bridge? Um, it's got some of my absolute favorite emotional beats of season one, for mm-hmm. sure, mostly for for mm-hmm. Bellamy and Raven. Yeah. There's a couple of moments that I just like, I still cry. I just rewatched it. I don't even know how many times I've seen this episode. I've seen season one a lot. And I think I cry every single time Bellamy tells Octavia oh, God. that he's happy yeah. she's there. Like every fucking time. <laughs> I, and I had I had forgotten. I haven't rewatched this one in a little while. And I had forgotten how how much good Blake sibling stuff yeah. we get. Yeah. And this remains one of my, I think, I think I would put this like sort of series wide in my top three Raven episodes. Oh yeah, for sure. Like up there with with Nevermore, I think. Yes. And you know, and for and for me, obviously, like it takes a lot for an episode to hold my interest top to bottom when there's no adults. <laughs> like <laughs> you know what you know how I get when there's no adults. Right, right, right. And the thing that this episode does, which is also why I loved Nevermore so fucking much, just by it again having no adults, is that sometimes what that means, like what that drilling down into one storyline does, is it keeps everything so crisp and clean and tight that the whole plot is accelerating and you're just sort of barreling through and like every time I rewatch this episode I vividly remember like in my body the visceral sensation of that like anxiety and stress and like tension the first time you watch it as all of the pieces build like at the beginning when you're genuinely like is everyone gonna die from this blood fever thing all the way up through that like insane sequence on the bridge like this was one of the episodes where and I think you know it kicks off in episode three with killing Wells where it really leaves you feeling like there's no character that isn't on the table mm-hmm. so with this one there are so many moments where you think like Bellamy could die from this blood fever thing yeah. you know like yeah. Raven could die on this bridge like you're still not quite sure enough yet of who the main characters are that are safe because five episodes ago you know we thought Wells was somebody who was sick. Yeah. I remember the first time watching this, finding so many moments where I was like, oh my God, he's totally going to die. Oh my God, she's totally going to die. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I and I remember watching, this was one of the few, I, I watched a couple episodes of the show, I think not last Christmas, but the one before with my sister when I was making her watch it. And this one, I was like, okay, I really like, I have to watch this one with you because I have to like watch you watch it. And it was so fucking hilarious. She's like on the couch with a blanket like over her face, but kind of like peering out of it the entire time. Like, like, oh my God, they're bleeding. Oh my god, that's so gross. Oh my god, what's gonna happen? Oh my god, I hear like she's just freaking out. And I was like, and it was like getting to watch it again the first time. I was like, this is this is hysterical. Because she because like you just it just takes off like a freight train and doesn't let go of you. And that is, I think, the sort of one storyline episodes that work really well, like this one and like Nevermore. It's because the momentum starts right at the beginning and it builds and you just feel like you can't exhale until the whole yeah, episode yeah, is over. Totally. Um, which I yeah. 
which I absolutely love. Watching this first, the first time, I was not at all sure that Raven was going to survive. You know, like I was yeah. watching the yeah. first, it was like, it was agony because like it was totally plausible that she would, that, you know, that she wouldn't make it, that like she would blow up or whatever. And it was just, mm-hmm. I just, you just like so much tension. And then like, just when you're relaxing, yeah. just at the end, you're like, okay, whew, all right, all right. It all turned out okay. Mm-hmm. Then you get the little like tag scene where Murphy kills Connor and it's like, what the fuck? Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and, and that okay was that was <laughs> yeah and and that was such a beautiful that murphy fake out like the little sort yeah. of mini murphy arc in this episode is like yeah it, it just it's a it's another little sort of dark shocking twist because now you're like okay did, was it just like he killed that guy because that guy tried to hang him and his like anger is like specific to connor or is there some bigger traitor in their midst kind of thing and he's convinced them all that he's safe and he's really not. I mean like it's just like it, yeah. it reinserts this violent danger into where you feel like okay well the at least now everything's okay they got a little reprieve they blew up the bridge only a couple people died everyone with the disease is healing and then all of a sudden you're just like oh no wait danger is like here like you right, know inside right. the gates again you know and yeah there's a murder among you and you don't even know you know it's like that you don't even know of like the killer is in the house <laughs> yes yes exactly yeah <laughs> and like the protagonists don't even know it's like it's right there yeah. it's right next to you <laughs> yeah and it ramps up and so that tension like all the things that we know that they don't know you're just like oh my god oh my god oh my god oh my god i mean it really because and we only you know we're three episodes away from the finale at this point and we've talked about this a couple of times before but like the back half of this season and that just sort of straight gut-wrenching propulsion from you know the midpoint to the finale is such beautifully constructed television you know Mm -hmm. you get just enough breaks to kind of pause and breathe for a second then you feel like you kind of let your guard down and then something else happens and then you breathe again and then something else happens and so it just sort of keeps you in this perpetual state of like (gasps) you know but in the best possible way yeah totally so this one you know we normally sort of do one storyline at a time you know arc and then ground or ground and the arc but this is really this is really one so we're going to just start at the beginning of the episode and talk our way through it so the cold open is the really heart-wrenching little sequence of everybody picking through the wreckage of the exodus ship mm-hmm. the um oh somebody god who was it i think it was our friend meg somebody dm'd me on twitter and told me this is was hilarious and amazing that she ran into I think she saw Kate Vernon who played Diana Sidney at Dragon Con because she was also on Battlestar Galactica and has done all kinds of other shows and that either she asked her or somebody else asked her about Diana Sidney and that Kate Vernon said that her headcanon is always that Diana escaped that crash and has been like holed up with some grounder clan somewhere and like made herself their queen and is just sort of like (laughs) lying in wait and I was like god I and then that's why I was watching this episode and being like, you know what? I'm willing to believe it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I mean, I'm sure she's dead now, but it's like I would, I would be so willing to suspend all of my disbelief if, like, at some point in season five, they're trolling around and they find like a random cave of survivors who like outlasted Prime by it, and there is Diana Sydney. I would be like, I don't even care that it's not plausible. I just, I want that crazy bitch back. But um, you know what? You know what would be really amazing if Diana Sydney turned out to be Cadigan. 
like Scooby Doo style, you know, like they stumble yes. across this, this like, secret bunker, and it's actually the secret fourteenth bunker because it turns out that there was a fourteenth bunker in addition to the thirteenth bunker. And they're like, "Oh my God, Diana Sydney!" And then she like pulls off her face, and underneath is Bill Cadigan, <laughs> and she's like, "Ha I've been here all along." <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you pesky kids. <laughs> exactly. I would, I would again, suspend all of my disbelief if we get a Scooby-Doo ending involving Diana Sidney pulling off her face and turning out to be Bill Cadigan. That would be amazing. <laughs> the, the rover can be the mystery machine, you know? Like, we'll just yes. It up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and and um, Clark is Shaggy and Maddie is Scooby. And yeah. um, Bellamy can be Daphne and <laughs> Raven can be and Fred. Raven can be Velma. Oh, Fred. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who's no, Velma? Wait. Oh, actually, no. I was sorry. I was thinking Bellamy should be Velma. Yeah. And then yeah. I don't know who Fred and, and Daphne would be. We got to give this some thought because I like this idea. Yes. I'm here okay. for this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Ideally, they <laughs> should find her in like Bunker 14 should be like beneath a rundown amusement park. Like yes. for maximum well, there is one. We've realism. Been there. There yeah. Was, there was that like old abandoned yeah so like they go to the old abandoned like roller coaster or whatever mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. which is in the credits but yeah i think we're already in that place and yeah there's like the bunker in the old abandoned in the old haunted <laughs> <laughs> amusement park yes where diana sydney aka bill cadigan is uh yeah. hiding out and like scaring people away from checking out that safe space by making mm-hmm, it by mm-hmm. like pretending to be a ghost yes exactly yeah this is a brilliant plan <laughs> You're welcome for this free plot idea, Jason. <laughs> Everything is better as Scooby-Doo, honestly. Like, I think that's, that's really one, true. That's the thing that we learned from, you know, Wayne's World is that the best ending is the Scooby-Doo ending. Absolutely. That's, really, like, that's all we, all any of us ever really want is the Scooby-Doo that's ending. That's true. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It is, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh, we laugh to keep from crying over Clark picking through what she thinks are her mom's bones. Oh, God. (laughs) I was like... I think the episode opens, you know, like sort of it, mm-hmm. there's like a hand and then it pans over and it's like a yep, disembodied yep. arm and I'm just like, oh, hello. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like Clark looking at that like burned out, that that blackened skeleton and you you know mm-hmm. she's thinking like that could be her mom's bones. It's just like devastating. Yeah. And then it's yeah. even worse, you know, as like foreshadowing for the end of the season when she incinerates all those grounders and walks outside and sees mm-hmm. the same thing, which is actually kind of perfect. I was thinking about like there's I think there's a lot more foreshadowing in this episode for the end of the season than I had ever really caught before because there's that there's Clark looking mm-hmm. at the sort of charred bones which again happens when she comes out of the dropship after lighting the rockets and then there's the I am become death when she says I am become death which is also kind of connecting to what she does at the end of this season and then yeah yeah even like looking forward you know becoming Juan Hedda like this is the first moment like Clark says it and she doesn't mean it in that way but that's what is what right. she becomes but then also at the very end of this episode when Bellamy comes outside with his like weird honor guard of guys with torches and is like, hey, Clark, get the fuck back inside before you give me gray hair and a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) And she's looking at the graves and she says to him, 14 dead, which I hadn't thought about before, but like that's what he says to her in the finale, 18 dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's alive, which I was like, oh, holy shit. Mm -hmm. Like she was the first one to say. So like there's a whole bunch of little things that kind of come back in We Are Grounders part two, which I hadn't really totally realized before, but Mm -hmm. I think that does also contribute to the sense that 
from this point to the end, we're just barreling towards mm-hmm. this finale. Like everything is clicking together from here on out. Yeah, because we know starting from the end of the previous episode with Finn's disastrous attempt at diplomacy, you know, <laughs> we, we know there's, you know, there's no treaty, there's no peace to be had, the grounders are coming, and everything that happens is basically just leading up to whatever we can, you know, anticipate or envision of some kind of a final confrontation, you know? And yeah. and so what this episode does so beautifully is letting us exist in the tension of trying to see if we can stall the inevitability of that attack. Yeah, right, right. Like, like learning concretely that the attack is coming, realizing how spectacularly unprepared they are and frantically, desperately trying to buy themselves some time. Yeah. And that, and so without any actual real fighting, the stakes of the impending battle are so sky high the whole time you know yeah, even though we're yeah. in that little sort of in between moment oh and also this is the first episode where they mention mountain men Lincoln talks about yes the I flagged that too yeah and yeah, there's yeah. a drawing and like when Octavia's flipping through his little notebook there's a drawing mm-hmm. of a Mount Weather guy in a gas mask yeah so this is where they start dropping hints to the end of season twist too so I feel like these last four episodes are all one unit yeah like from the moment that we know the war is coming until yeah. the war arrives. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, well, and with the arc too, because it's like from the moment that that Exodus ship takes off without decoupling and crashes, everything on the ground for these last four episodes is barreling towards the finish and then up on the arc you know even though we don't have an arc storyline in this one it's the same thing the last thing that happened is what's going to propel everything that happens up on the arc to the end of the season so it's like it's almost like a four-part finale yeah it really is and because they're disconnected from each other because they can't communicate that also ramps up you know neither of them know what's happening with the other right that helps elevate that dramatic tension even higher you know Clark has Clark has no way of knowing we talked about last time you know Clark has no way of knowing until four episodes into season two that her mother is not dead. Yes. And Abby, and they also, and she also has part of the urgency in this episode is even though it isn't really explicitly spoken in any kind of a way, like the crash of the Exodus ship is emotionally treated mostly as the sort of emotional beat is about Clark and her mom and everyone mm-hmm. kind of not quite sure what to say to Clark and Raven being the first person to really sort of ask the question that's only sort of answered indirectly about how is it possible that the ship crashed. Yeah. But it isn't, the thing that isn't spoken but is seeded through it very clearly is the fact that their assumption now is that the cavalry's not coming. Yes. Right. And they're on their they own. Are totally, There's no backup. Yeah. There, come there are no more bullets. The bullets right. they have are what they have. And so right. the bullet rationing starting as a small thing that doesn't seem to be super urgent when they think that there's going to be a whole battalion of art guards showing up in 72 hours has now become you know, the urgency of something that starts out sort of very small and becomes the driver of the huge action set piece of this plot. I think the way that's Mm -hmm. handled is really nicely done. Like, nobody says out loud, like, the fact that the ship crashed means that, no, like, but it's all sort of clear in the way that they're like, okay, well, now you have three rounds. You have to make this shot in three rounds, Jasper. We Mm -hmm. don't have another option. You know, Mm -hmm. Raven has to figure out something else to do to delay the grounders besides trying to shoot at them because they don't have enough guns for it. There 
are real questions on both sides about whether using up the last of the gunpowder for the bomb is strategically smart or stupid. So all the different things that play into driving the episode to the conclusion that it comes to are shaped by the belief that they are now working under that there is no help coming, they're completely on their own, and there are no resources available to them except for what they can scrounge up using their own smarts, which is why I think the episode is so profoundly shaped by Raven because she's the person who has that kind of look around you at what's available problem solver brain which is just watching her work like watching her brain think in this episode is so satisfying yeah yeah like watching her sort of vile through possibilities to come up with a new plan like that moment when she says it won't survive me is just like such a great oh, you know like one so of the good. top yeah. three raven moments of all mm-hmm. time yeah yeah just in and, and like so quintessentially raven you know like those moments when like this is a thing that she knows like she knows that she can do you know that, that maybe nobody else can figure out how to do but like she can like solve this problem yeah yeah and just and the fact that again and so deftly and neatly the solution that she comes up with stems from what we see at the very beginning she realizes that the ship is or the wreckage of the ship is leaking hydrazine which is super dangerous and initially that's presented to us as a sort of okay everybody clear out this is dangerous on everyone stay away from it mm-hmm. and then we kind of watch her putting the pieces back together later when that information is needed so like nothing in this episode is wasted information which is just which I really love everything that's introduced becomes hardwired into the plot later really really elegantly which I just absolutely love but it is is also really haunting watching the camera pan across that wreckage and the kids picking around it like nothing salvageable nothing they can use no guns survived no equipment no metal that's in good enough shape for them to repurpose like there's nothing Mm -hmm. you know like the sort of despair of that apart from just the loss of human life the possibility that Abby was on there but just sort of looking at it being like this was gonna be our big break (laughs) Yeah, right. And now and there's nothing. A, yeah. It's just a smoldering crater of wreckage. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hooray. now what do we do? Yeah. And if what that ain't the hundred, I don't know what it is. Our salvation is yeah. actually a smoldering pile of wreckage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It is the most quintessentially the hundred moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look. Look up in the sky. Rescue's coming. Just kidding. No, it isn't. <laughs> Instead, it's another uh, disaster. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, um, the other, like, I always forget, and I think deliberately, I always forget the Jasper storyline in this episode. Like, every time I watch it, yes. I'm like, oh, right, yeah. this one. Because, like, I think the scene that we cut to right after that opening mm-hmm. um, scene is uh, Monty and Octavia watching Jasper bragging about shooting at the grounders at the peace mm-hmm. negotiations. And this is actually, you know, this is the first time that Harper actually gets a significant role yeah. of any kind. Like, she's been, I think she's been around before. I think mm-hmm. she's been there, but she hasn't really had, like, much to do. And this is the first time that she really get something to do and and yeah this is not jasper's and finest. it's not good no yeah it's it's pretty bad actually <laughs> yeah it's really the first episode where we see what becomes i think more so in the beginning of season three than any place else but that we see that underneath his sort of formerly like you know the persona of jasper that we're introduced to is so pure and innocent yeah. he's nerdy and he desperately looks up to bellamy and is has a sort 
of still on the front burner at this point crush on Octavia and you know his love for Monty is so pure and he's scared but he's also trying so hard like there's sort of there's an earnestness about him that's sort of impossible not to love in these early episodes especially because he's paired so often with Monty and with Octavia and mm-hmm. with Clark and her little inner circle posse and so he's just so deeply likable and empathetic you know even in his vulnerability and this is the first episode where we see what sort of metastasizes in season three into the sort of uglier side of his arc which is that there's a little streak of malice in him or or not malice yeah. but pettiness and, and meanness and lashing out at people when he's attacked especially the ones that are closest to him and it's small in this episode and he snaps out of it when Monty shows up yeah. but it is there and the calling Harper low hanging fruit is one of those moments that just like I want like I, I hate it so much that I want to be able to sort of like excise it from canon and pretend like it didn't happen but it did happen you know yeah. it's in there yeah. and so it yeah. so like that side of Jasper in season three that like in his deepest grief over Maya is just a spectacular dick to everyone around him like lashing out like I'm unhappy and I'm gonna be like mean to your face just to make you unhappy because fuck everything like that little mm. I feel like this is our first glimpse that there is that little bit of darkness inside him and I don't hate the fact that they give him something, they give him traits that are not likable. I mean, I think that's important. And I feel I'm willing to buy the first part of it. Like, I'm I'm willing to buy Jasper suddenly having power after having felt powerless his entire life and handling it badly and sort of exaggerating and bragging over what he actually did. Like, that part I feel like tracks, but in terms of, like, the crowd adulation. But it's the Harper scene. It's the, like, Harper sort of offering herself and him being like nah I I don't like that's she's too easy I think I can still get Octavia it's the part of it again like the part of it that's gendered where the show normally sort of stays away from those gendered tropes that I'm just kind of like is like hard ick but I buy I do buy Jasper having sort of almost to accidentally through sheer panic as Octavia points out done something that came off as heroic and instead of admitting that he just spooked yeah he sort of takes the credit he hasn't really earned because it's so revelatory for him to be like the fighter tough guy you know so I think that part of it I I do feel with this version of Jasper I think tracks and makes sense you know like he gets a tiny little fraction of a hero moment and he ludicrously you know almost comically inflates it like the, because of the first scene I, I found it sort of funny where Octavia is saying oh my god like <laughs> this is like like listen to what he's saying this is ridiculous and I think having yeah. having Octavia there side eyeing it makes it work you know like somebody is yeah. saying like he's acting like a fucking child it is not what happened <laughs> like right. oh my god I was there he was panicking and Monty being like I know but like let him have like let him have have it you know well, so like, let so us I, have this yeah like that they're a unit yeah so here's how I read this and I think it's like one of those things where like I think that the I think that like taken on its own you know the sort of like emotional arc for Jasper in this episode makes sense you know um but I think the problem might be that it makes the reasons that it makes sense don't really they kind of like clash a little bit with 
the world building in the show up until this point and then kind of going forward. So Jasper to me in this episode feels like, it feels very, very realistic as, you know, if you think about Jasper as like a 15 year old boy, I think, I think he and Monty are supposed to be 15 in season one, Mm -hmm. but like 15, 16 year old boy, you know, so like high school boy who, who, like you said, gets like a taste of popularity, like a taste Mm -hmm. of the limelight of like adulation. And then just, and then that taste of that, that like little, that little bit of sort of like mainstream popularity, which is something that somebody like Jasper has been denied basically his whole life, has never gotten, was never thought that he would get, just totally warps him. And like, I feel like that's a, like a super, super true story. You know, like we've all, yeah, like, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is a, a very, very common trope, but it's also a thing that like I knew people in high school, but that happened mm-hmm. too. Where like, oh, yeah. they're, they're sort of, their behavior is dictated more by like the social group that they identify with than anything else, you know? And so like when Jasper was identifying with, when he's, when he feels like he's kind of the nerdy kid and he's with Monty and they're like sort of, they tag along with the cool kids, but they're not the cool kids sort of thing. When he finally gets a taste of being kind of like the alpha guy, then what happens is, and this is very like, fit, you know, fits with 15 year old boy, is that he starts taking on behaviors that he associates with being the popular boy, right? Right. So right. like what happens is that Jasper's not, you know, it's, and it's one of those like funny things about like teenagers I think where it's even hard to say if it is Jasper you know like obviously it's in him but it's also in a weird way he's like acting out a part you know he's like he's sort of like okay now I'm the popular kid which means like I'm gonna start behaving in the ways that I associate with this so I'm gonna be like cocky and I'm going to be you know misogynistic and sort of like objectifying and like think that I deserve the like quote-unquote better girls or whatever or that I'm that I'm too cool for my old friends like this is a very very typical right right yeah Mm-hmm. You know, like fits with that kind of like trope. It's like a very high school trope, but like sort of transposed into yes. this this different world. So that makes sense to me in terms of just if you think about Jasper as a teenage character, mm-hmm. you give a teenage boy a taste of power and popularity, and it's like not unusual that that's gonna kind of like make him a monster <laughs> for a minute. Like right, right, like, yeah. That he's gonna kind of like ditch the. He's gonna start ditching his friends that he always thought about as uncool, like him. You know, which is shitty. But again, mm-hmm. like this is something that. I'm sure happened to a lot of us when we were in high school with our actual friends. Yeah. And then I think the other, so that's like part of it. I think the other part of Jasper's story in this episode, which I actually think like on a, on a kind of like less of a character level and more of like a thematic or narrative level, which I think is really interesting is that in giving Jasper this storyline where he sort of, he does something that can be and has been interpreted as sort of badass and heroic by the people around him. Mm-hmm even though it really wasn't. He sort of latches on to this identity that is neither really based in fact nor based in who he truly is, Mm -hmm. but kind of fits with the sort of, it fits with all the kind of expectations of a hero. This is his hero story. He Mm -hmm. saved everyone. You know, he shot the grounders, whatever. So like he's playing this role as a kind of like alpha guy, hero, you know, savior person. And with that, he expects, like, he expects adulation, he expects girls and whatever. I think what's interesting is that what we get by the end of the episode with Monty kind of, like, calling him out, with him going to shoot the cannon, actually being a savior, actually saving everyone, and having to rely Mm -hmm. on Monty to do it, and having to sort of admit that he is you know, that he has weaknesses, that he has fear, and then coming back, you know, and having that sort of quiet moment of, of like, private acknowledgement from Octavia 
without further expectation from her. I think what's interesting mm -hmm. is that like by giving Jasper the story, the show was sort of setting up like a typical hero trope and then subverting it. Like, so the whole sort of arc is that I think about yeah. them kind of like setting up the typical hero arc and also really playing up and pointing out all of the like misogynistic baggage of that trope deliberately to make it as gross as possible, I think. And then undercutting it at mm -hmm. the end to show like, okay, well, what real heroes do is quiet, you know, like he actually saved them. Right. And when you're actually being heroic, when you actually do something like that, it's not about the adulation, you know, it's about just saving everyone and having these like, and, and sort of, you know, reaffirming the real relationships that you have and so forth. So on that level, I think psychologically to me, it makes perfect sense for a teenage boy to behave in this way. And I think right. they do something really interesting in terms of, you know, as a show that I think particularly in season one was really, really conscious about the way that it was using gendered tropes and misogynistic tropes. I do think that they were actually very consciously setting up Jasper to be super gross when he was the fake hero in order to kind of like subvert and debunk mm -hmm. those tropes. And then kind of rewrite what being a hero like that means for this show. Mm -hmm. So all of that like works for me and I think it's like well executed. The thing to me that where, where it's a little bit sort of like, I think maybe the reason why it's so jarring and why it still feels a little bit like, okay, I get what you're going for, but it rings a little false kind of is because supposedly... You know, the world of 100 is a world in which that kind of like really intensely misogynistic objectification of women and diminution of women into sexual objects as rewards for like heroic men, supposedly that no longer obtains in this world. Like this is supposed to be, mm -hmm. we've sort of been told like, you know, some things in the future are worse, but one thing, one of the things that's better is like gender equality. You know, like women are leaders and no right. one thinks twice about it. So like, I think the problem with it is like Jasper's behavior makes perfect sense in a 21st century or 20th century high school where mm -hmm. those kinds of misogynistic double standards still very much exist culturally. Right, where a hot girl is your reward for doing something badass. Right, where like if you watch TV or movies that we have now, like this is the message you get. It makes sense that this is the script that Jasper would play out. You know, this right. is the script that he would have in his head if he was a 15-year-old in high school now, you know. It makes less sense in the sort of fictional world in which he supposedly exists. Right. I think his behavior is more anomalous in the world of the hundred. It's like there's less precedence. Just like, why are you suddenly like virulently, horribly misogynist out of nowhere in a way that like no one else we really ever see on the show is? You know, so I think maybe yeah. that's why it doesn't quite click. Yeah, there there's no other storyline where a man is offered a woman or perceives himself to be being offered a woman as a reward for having done something violently heroic. Like that's a, yeah. it's a set of tropes that fit into, like you said, like it's a whole different sort of series of archetypes. And the fact that it is, you know, the fact that Harper's first real moment of being wired into the plot in a way that individualizes her from the group is as the subject of that yeah. is a secondary and connected problem where it's like we're first yeah. introduced to Harper as the victim of this gross trope that like you said like makes perfect sense in a very different world from this world but in this world it is glaringly out of place because it is so inherently gendered yes exactly and it was specifically yeah. gendered in a way that we're, we're being told and that's being portrayed to us in other um, occasions as no longer being relevant in this society, right. you know? So, right, yeah. So it doesn't have the grounding in, like, a 15-year-old boy who is not consciously 
aware of and like sort of deprogramming himself from the kinds of sexist assumptions that you just sort of subconsciously would gather as a 15 year old mm-hmm. boy from culture. Like, okay, right. fine, that makes sense. Yeah. But like, supposedly, like he's in a world where he's not getting those messages. So where is it coming from? So I think, right, right. I think although like the internal logic of Jasper's storyline in this episode, both in terms of like psychologically and then also in terms of taking the trope and turning on its head and subverting it, like kind of internally it makes sense. But like in a broader context of the show, it's a little, I think that's why it feels sort of like, whoa, this was like, holy shit, out of nowhere, slapped in the face with like the grossest line that has ever been uttered on this show, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of my like all-time least favorite moments of the whole series like yeah. it's just a it's, so it's one of them it's one of the most horrible things that any character that we like ever says yeah yeah for yeah. sure yeah no and it's like really, yeah and I think that's why I always forget that storyline because I think like subconsciously mm-hmm. I want to you know I'm just like, like yeah like I wanna I wanna I want to excise it from canon because I don't want to, I don't want that to be something that Jasper thought and said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and it, yeah, and it's even, easy to even do if that it's because it, it is so mm-hmm. anomalous, you know, like, but yeah, we haven't, we haven't had any other indications, even with the sort of, with the Octavia stuff that hasn't been and doesn't continue to be ever again the way that Jasper treats women. Like, he definitely has mm-hmm. this sort of like doomed nerd with a crush on the hot girl thing with Octavia. But that isn't presented at all in the same way. You know, like he just yeah. he just has a crush on her, you know, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and perceives them to be sort of in, you know, different social strata and is always trying to impress her. But she likes him. I mean, like she, you know, she's obviously we're well into the Linktavius at this point, but she likes him because he's kind. You know, like yeah, she likes him yeah. because she feels like he's a good person, you know, and because of that sort of that sweetness and that earnestness and that desire to help. And so yeah, so it is so so I don't I don't have any issue with the narrative roughing Jasper up a little bit. You know, I think if anything, they wait too long to do that even with Monty, you know, like to give them some sort of non cinnamon roll character traits. I think that's really mm-hmm. important, you mm-hmm. know, and yeah. and, you know, and Monty doesn't really get his until season three with some of the Hannah stuff and Jasper obviously gets his much earlier. So I think it's good that even now they're sort of beginning to introduce some moments where you can look at Jasper and be like, oh. Why are you doing that? You know, yeah, just to sort of yeah. so that it isn't quite so much like he's adorable and perfect the whole time to a degree that feels unrealistic. But yeah. this did feel like it feels like it belongs to I don't want to say like it feels like it belongs to a CW teen show. It's one of those yeah. few moments that it feels like the complex and sophisticated dystopian sci-fi show that this show becomes and and is already on so many levels in its very first season. You know, this is one of those moments where it feels like you could graft that moment onto any other, you know, like that could fit on Riverdale. That could fit on <laughs> the OC. that could fit on Dawson's Creek you have a nerdy boy who does something accidentally inflates the story and a girl that would have been out of his league a week ago is suddenly like nah I'm gonna keep her on this shelf and go for the head cheerleader like that's you know (laughs) like you could graft this onto anything yeah Exactly. It feels like it's lifted directly out of a totally different genre of show and then just dropped in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and so so it's so it's interesting because it's like part of me feels like I think there are important 
thoughts about that misogynist trope that I think are always worth unpacking when you have a storyline like that on television. But here it's like it feels so anomalous that it's like, how deeply do we analyze that moment? Because it does not feel like we're necessarily meant to attribute deep latent misogyny Mm -hmm. to Jasper's character before or since. It's just a sort of weird little blip, you know, but it is, yeah, it is a, it is deeply gross. (laughs) And I like that it, we sort of, that we move past it. There is that weird moment. It does actually, I just remembered, I think, I can't remember what, I can't remember exactly which episode it is, but early in season one, there is that moment when Jasper, Jasper did something. And Octavia tells him bravery is always rewarded and she kisses him on the, on the cheek. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I feel like this episode is sort of like the capper to that moment. Like that moment set up something. Like if there is a sort of like through line that gets Jasper within this world here, I feel like it would be from that moment of sort of a certain kind of bravery is rewarded by female attention right and that like there's and, you know it sort of like metastasizes and this is both the moment when it kind of comes to a head in jasper and then also the moment when the show goes back and is like nope we're gonna right right we're gonna reverse that one we're gonna say nope that is incorrect that is not how yeah bravery like rewards for bravery works so like that's the only thing i can think of as a through line but even then that's like nothing that's like barely anything you know right well and i and i do think you're right i think that we're meant to interpret that, that this stems from that as an outgrowth of that and i yeah, think yeah, having yeah. having octavia there sort of side-eyeing it is a nice little reminder that this is not what Octavia meant. Right. Yes, yes, yes. I think it does sort of help keep that in proportion. Right. That, this what, is a that mis- what she was saying... Misconstrual this is a mis- what she meant. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Have you ever read an essay by Arthur Chu called Your Princess is in Another Castle? And it sort of begins nominally as, I think it was on like Salon, it was a couple years ago. I dug it out again a few months ago because I cited it in my, when I wrote my friend's essay about oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Gross Ross, but <laughs> um, but it's great. And it's, it's one of my sort of all-time favorite feminist think pieces, even though it is written by a dude, but Arthur Chu is like a legit dude. But it's it sort of begins ostensibly as kind of a cultural critique of the misogyny of the Big Bang Theory, but kind of expands beyond that to address all of the different ways in which nerd culture reinforces this very exact notion, which is that beautiful women are a reward obtained for achieving certain goals and how Mm. sort of hardwired that, like how video game culture, like the way video games treat women and the way generations of boys Boys who grew up playing video games absorb messaging about women as objects that you win as prizes for meeting certain benchmarks of achievement mm-hmm. ties into concepts like the friend zone where it's like I perform enough friendship acts and I'm rewarded by sex with you yeah, that yeah, is yeah. the contract I believe we've sort of you know engaged in and, and so it's just, so it's, it's brilliant it's, I think everyone should should read it it's called Your Princesses in Another Castle Misogyny Entitlement and Nerds it's by Arthur Chu it's totally great but it, it really Really, it does a beautiful job, I think, of pulling apart the ways those particular archetypes work in media and in places like the Big Bang Theory, where they are entirely unexamined, where the show mm-hmm. just is premised upon that trope being something that is like that everyone is sort of accepts as a given. So here, I think there is a real effort to sort of to circumvent and deflate that. But it also does feel a little bit like it is very much the easy 
choice to make Jasper's reward he believes that he gets for his achievement a woman you know like it is it is as opposed to like keeping it more about the crowd acclaim yeah I'm perfectly willing to let it live there like the first scene actually works for me the first scene where like yes there's girls there but there's a whole crowd there you know like he's like the star of the whole community temporarily you know and he's milking that moment if it had just been more about like Jasper and Monty and Jasper being like okay but the cool kids like me now yeah yeah and 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 that Monty, like he doesn't have time for Monty because he's like Bellamy's new right hand man, and like he's like yes. Mr. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Yes, yeah. That like that thread of it, I think, totally works for me. And where I think that is actually sort of beautiful foreshadowing is that I think anytime we get little hints of Jasper's desire to be Bellamy, mm-hmm. it leads us so neatly into who he becomes in season two when Bellamy isn't there, and he's the one who steps up to become the leader of the kids in Mount Weather even though you know Miller's right there Miller has way more fighting experience Harper has more fighting experience but Jasper's the one who takes on the leadership mantle and I think that it is because his sort of adulation for Bellamy or or sort of for the picture in his head of the kind of person he thinks Bellamy is and his desire to be that kind of person I feel like that is actually one of the clean kind of running plot threads from Jasper's arc from season one into season two yeah. where we see him fight through his instinctive desire to spook and run when there's danger and become like the guy who's fighting to keep all of his people safe and so that thread of it being introduced here that I think if they had sort of left it on that level that it's about him being like yeah that's right I'm the guy that Bellamy brought along to shoot at the grounders like me and Bellamy I'm his guy you know yeah. who's this Miller bro who's fuck him I'm tonight. the number two yeah like exactly yeah. yeah yeah and I think I yeah think, like you know what now that I think about it more I think also a big part of the problem like I think part of the reason why that one scene with Harper feels so gross and why it rings so false it like seems off from what you expect from the show is that like part of the problem is that this would also work a lot better if it was if Jasper's presumption that his reward for being a hero was female attention was entirely in his head right like if it was just like Mm -hmm. Jasper being gross and assuming this and then having that debunked the problem with Harper is that Harper's role in this episode is basically like showing that to be true right the fact that we have Harper there being like "Ooh, you're the hero and then being interested in him where she wasn't before like yeah it adds this additional layer to like it's not just that Jasper thinks that it's that other people apparently do too and that at least one girl Harper believes that Mm -hmm. and is behaving in that way and like I think that adds a level that I think that that kind of like complicates it and makes it feel more like the show is endorsing that view. Yeah, like it feels like the show is saying what happens when you do something awesome is willing girls come to your bed and offer themselves to you. Exactly. And where Jasper is a dick is that he's like, I'm going to stick a pin in this, see if I can get a hotter girl. If not, I'll come back to you. But like low hanging fruit means like this one's too easy. You know, like I can bag Harper whenever I want to, Jasper's saying. And so if 
he was like, you know, if he was hitting on her, like if he was the one who was making the moves in some way, you know, like yeah. on her, on Octavia or something yeah. like that, then yeah, then it is sort of part and parcel of this whole delusion. And that also tracks with, there's a way to do that where, again, it's less about the idea of, of Jasper having this sort of inherent nerd misogyny and more to do with, and I feel like I, this would have tracked so much better, if it's yet another way that he's emulating Bellamy's behaviors, mm. you know, like the, you know, like Bellamy being like the threesome guy, mm-hmm. you know, with like mm-hmm. the hot girls in his bed, like, like the, that part of how Bellamy, you know, like is perceived by the other kids, you know, has to do not just with being badass, not just with being a leader, not just with being a good shot, not just with being like alpha guy helping Clark make decisions, like number two person in the camp, you know, but it's also because like he's sexual, you know, like ladies like him, like he's popular, like the guys like him, the girls like him, like everyone is like, he has this sort of crowd charisma, Mm -hmm. you know, and, but he also has like sexual magnetism with many of the girls, you know, like at Mm -hmm. least three of some girls we've seen so far, you know. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, you know, you go out and shoot stuff during the day and then you come back and have threesomes at night being like what a leader does as that vision that Jasper has in his head like like if this was threaded with that in some way then I feel like it becomes less about Jasper's misogyny and more about Jasper attempting to emulate the kind of person that he wishes in his head he could be. Right. And again, and again, it's like, as with the the sort of callback to Octavia telling him bravery is always rewarding and kissing him, it's a miscontrol, mm-hmm. a sort of like... Yes, taking, yes, exactly. A behavior yeah. that was actually like Bellamy at his worst, you know, a behavior that Bellamy no right. longer engages in, like shit that Bellamy himself was doing in order to sort of position himself as a leader over kids in a kind of manipulative way that right. he's right. like not engaging in anymore, like ever since he basically basically woke up and was like wow I was a fucking bastard I'm gonna change my ways yeah exactly and like but Jasper is yeah. still so wrapped but Jasper up. doesn't know that yeah, yeah like Jasper hasn't been able Jasper can't disentangle hero leader guy from a guy who gets a lot of girls whereas for Bellamy it's sort of like mm-hmm. those are things that are not necessarily connected and the way that they were connected had to do with how fucked up he was at the very beginning you know yeah it was a way of sort of throwing his power around right and, yeah yeah, yeah. You know, and, 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 sort of like and as much about being like I'm on the ground I'm free nobody can stop me you know like I've been alone for yeah a year exactly blah, blah, blah. and you know yeah. and and something that I think you know implicitly he's recognized was not good but again but Jasper hasn't really like all these things are sort of like mixed up together for him and he hasn't figured out how to yeah it would make more sense if it, if it was sort of made if it was if there was some kind of explicit thing where it was like you totally misunderstood what makes a person yeah. like a good person. <laughs> like if the girl that he had gone after, like if, if instead of Harper coming to him, if he had gone to one of the girls that Bellamy slept with or something like yeah. that, yeah, yeah, where it's like, have I leveled up now enough to be able to like, you know, like it, and I don't, I don't quite know. Like, I don't want to like, in like, write Jason's show for him especially because the season is now you know four years in the past but I do feel like on the level that it works for me everything works that you can tie through the lens of you know Jasper still is at a place where he believes that Bellamy can do no wrong Mm -hmm. and that's the kind of person he wants to be and every time he gets a moment where Bellamy puts trust in him you know we see it like even in this episode when he realizes that he's being entrusted with this life or death task by Bellamy 
largely because he's the only one of the people who can shoot that isn't falling down with blood in his eyes and barely conscious. But still, Bellamy picked him, you know, like, still, like, the weight of that responsibility to be that guy, to be Bellamy's guy, I think is, you know, hardwired really deeply in there. And so I, I feel like anytime we see Jasper trying to establish himself as one of Bellamy's guys and the ways in which that sort of creates a little rifts between him and Monty, even though in this episode it's temporary because Monty comes back around by the end of it. You know, that all feels like it tracks so nicely with the building Jasper's emerging leadership arc that leads into season two. And I just feel like like there should have been another way to sort of work around the sort of adoring girls aspect of it where it didn't feel quite so much like the show itself is saying if you do something heroic this this actually is what happens to you yeah yeah. harpers will just show up in your tent and it's like i would shoot somebody for (laughs) chelsea reason is to walk into my tent and be like hey baby what's up like yeah fine yeah and i think but you know it's interesting because i was as i'm thinking about it i think that there is a possible theory of jasper for Jordan as a kind of like narrative of toxic masculinity from beginning to end. Yeah. In a really interesting way. You know, like we're in season one, we get this sort of like, his this like desire for status and power in a certain way and it's kind of like certain sort of misogyny and then season two, you know, he's sort of like steps up to be leader out of whatever like I mean like there's people like you said there's people around him who have way more experience right to be a leader but he just sort of like presumes it's his place Mm -hmm. and then even to his sort of total collapse later on and his nihilism I don't know I like I haven't totally thought it out but I think yeah interestingly theoretically like there's a kind of like thread to the difficulties and the challenges that Jasper's had and the way that he responds to them. And especially I was thinking about this in terms of like season three and four, you know, like Mm -hmm. part of the problem being that Jasper has this, you know, is struggling so much psychologically. And part of his issue is that he cannot, he cannot process those emotions or like cope with them or really even fully face them except as anger. The way that he sort of processes yeah. sadness and grief and loss and even fear and vulnerability kind of like metastasizes into this anger and aggression in a way that I think has some interesting resonances with mm-hmm. some of those problems of toxic masculinity in, in ways where like it's toxic masculinity is really very toxic to men because it kind of it right. stunts and even just prevents a sort of emotional growth that allows men to learn how to deal with those sorts of negative and vulnerable emotions in constructive and non-isolating ways. Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I do, because I, I think of, I tend to think of Jasper as one of those sort of examples throughout the show of a male character who is He's given kind of a remarkable level of permission to show what's going on behind the mask, mm-hmm. you know, like the the raw, ugly, you know, not pretty side of the darkness of, of his emotions is throughout. And this is maybe potentially the first sort of little inkling of that, that we, you know, that we get in, in this and the previous episode where we sort of see the depth of his terror mm-hmm. and the various mm-hmm. sort of defense mechanisms that he uses to kind of push that away so yeah i do you know that that sort of simmering little thread of darkness being in him from the beginning and then it kind of metastasizes by the time we hit season four i think i think it's possible you know sort of thinking of the arc as a whole i think that you can get there the thing that it just makes me sad about that is that i feel like one of the sort of most effective 
deterrence in combating toxic masculinity is for men to have safe, like emotionally safe and open and honest relationships with other men. Mm -hmm. And it makes me sad that for Jasper, that Monty's love for him is not enough. Like if that, you know, like if that's really true, like if that, like what it is about Jasper that makes him feel like, I guess maybe this is one of the things that I think makes me sad about this episode is this is the first this is the the sort of maybe the origin story of what sort of blossoms into one of the most horrible things about season four, about the way of like Jasper kind of like leaving Monty behind or taking Monty for granted or not considering the way his choices hurt Monty and make Monty feel sort of left behind, you know, mm-hmm. like in a way that that then in the worst sort of possible you know, ending for it ends with Jasper physically leaving Monty behind, like permanently leaving him behind, you know? Yeah. But the the sense of them as a unit is really sort of already in question by this point because there are times when Jasper really selfishly makes choices that Monty is then sort of left kind of cleaning up the mess or left sort of one step behind. And that is honestly, just if you think about it too hard, really, really, really depressing. It is really, really, really (laughs) depressing. Yeah. I mean, I think (laughs) there's like kind of no way around Jasper's story being really, really fucking depressing <laughs> no matter what. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to go back and and watch like what once was cute and be like, no, I know what's going to happen to you in six months and I don't want to think about it. I know, I know. Yeah. God, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, let's um, let's switch gears and talk about Murphy. Speaking ah, of Murphy, Murphy characters with four season arcs that begin to get really wacko right around here. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, so, poor Murphy. You know, because like, so he's yeah, he's, he's been with the Grounders this whole time, and they've kept him alive, mm-hmm. and they've been torturing him horrifically. Like the part where where Clark is like, they pulled off his fingernails. Like every time, I just like cringe so mm-hmm. hard. Like oh god, oh god, oh god. Yeah. So he's been tortured for information about them which of course he gave up and then he you know he shows up he they said he, he he runs home you know he like he goes back to the only even quasi safe place that he can mm-hmm. think of to go and <laughs> and instantly Bellamy's like all right we're gonna fucking kill him which you know like that's what they told yeah. him they say like you're banished <laughs> yeah. if you come back we'll kill you you know so so Bellamy's mm-hmm. just going with the thing that he and Clark decided but even then when when Clark stops him from killing uh, stops Bellamy from shooting Murphy. She's like, no, 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 don't shoot him. We're going to get all the information that we can out of him because he's useful. And then we'll kick him back out to die in the woods. And it's like, oh, wah. <laughs> poor <Yeah>. Murphy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it no really, I mean, to this. <laughs> it really is so like the kind of running thread of, you know, I mean, I guess sort of looking at Murphy's arc crossword. And we talk about this a lot with season four, like this sort of recurring little moments where we see how desperately even this early in the show Murphy wants a family like wants to feel like he belongs somewhere like it is heartbreaking when you realize like the grounders left his cage open so he could escape and he came back to the camp that exiled him just like hoping to god that like maybe you know this sort of like like hoping he gets some kind of a prodigal son i guess situation <laughs> you know but like or just hoping they wouldn't like shoot him on sight you know like <laughs> the kind of tragic hopefulness of that is really 
Like, it's so sad, you know, because he, like, the realization that, like, he doesn't have anywhere else to go, like, the best he can hope for is that the people who, like, exiled instead of killing him will continue to not kill him even though he broke the exile rule by coming back there but he has no other options like it's just so you know it's a he's another character where i feel like we're you know we're really getting even this early on we're getting all of these seeds planted for the person that he's become by the end of season four where he's like a fully fledged member of a team you know he Mm -hmm, has like these mm -hmm. are his people you know he Mm -hmm. has people and and i and i do feel like that there's something you know I think that that hope that Bellamy would I think it's so much of a center around Bellamy's like the hope that Bellamy would take him back or at least like not yeah. kill him. Yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah, but it's so just like it's just so devastating and it, and it is and so I like remember the first time watching this like wanting so badly to believe that his desire to help and like prove like make himself you know like make a place for him there was real like yeah, yeah. you know like the eagerness like he's like helping the other sick people you know like I totally like I completely bought it I was just like like and I'm I'm always like I'm just soft like I'm always ready to believe like the best in every character and I get my heart broken by television so many times because of it but I was so ready I was like yes okay so he came back and he knows he fucked up but like <laughs> he wants him to forgive him Look at him. Look how hard he's trying. (laughs) It's going to be different this time. Yeah. And then at the end, I was like, God damn it, Murphy. Like, I trusted you. Fool me twice, Murphy. Fool me twice. Exactly. I know. Oh, my God. Yeah. And yeah. So, yeah. No, the same same thing. Because it's like at the beginning, it is so heartbreaking. You're just like, oh, my God, poor Murphy. And like, he just wants a safe place. He just like, you know, like it's one of those visceral things you don't think about. I feel like as human beings, as a species, you know, like we're, we're social species Mm -hmm. and, and we, you know, like loneliness kills. Like I was reading something the other day, yesterday, it's actually what made, kind of what made me think about Jasper and toxic masculinity too, is this thing about men and loneliness. And there was like a part of it was basically saying like, yes, loneliness is like as deadly as like smoking five packs of cigarettes a day. Like it just like, it does Mm -hmm. really Mm fucked up things to you. And I feel like, you know, that's rooted in something that we don't think about now, but it's like so viscerally true, you know, watching Murphy in this episode, which is that like, there was, there was a, point I mean I guess it's still true technically but you don't notice as much like a single human being alone in the world for the most part will not survive like you have to be in a group of people like you need to be in a society Mm -hmm. in order to survive and in order to stay in a society you have to have like a place in it like there's like something like Mm -hmm. it's psychological it's like so fundamental to our like species psychology needing to be part of a group and it's like so fundamentally tied to like if you're not part of a group you're gonna die of starvation or exposure or like you know being killed by a bear or whatever Mm -hmm. and like for murphy you can see that that's like he needs to be in this camp because if he's not He's going to die alone in the woods. You know, like that is, that is like where Murphy is at, at this point, like die alone in the woods, find a way to convince these people to let him stay. So he's like doing everything he can. And so I think it makes that moment at the end, that turn, you know, that sort of like reveal that despite the fact that he's working his ass off to kind of like get himself back in with this group, he has not let go of his anger and his like need for vengeance or whatever. And he's going to try to do it on the DL, Mm -hmm. you know, he's like doing it like in stealth to try to like kill the people who wronged him with without actually getting kicked out to die alone in the woods. And it's just like, yeah. oh my God, <laughs> it's like so fucked up. <laughs> and the, and the knowledge, like the moment when he sets that bloody rag back down on the little, you know, thing, and you just know 
that nobody will ever know. Yeah. You know, no. like, like yeah. when you when you realize how neatly he has executed this whole plan where like, like just enough people have died from this that it's totally mm-hmm. plausible that any mm-hmm. random person could have died from this, you know, and that he did it quietly and everybody else was asleep and nobody heard or saw it. And you're just like, he's going to get away with this. Right. Like, right. he's going to. And now he's going to walk this, around. Like, I'm, and everybody's going to look at him like, oh, Murphy, he's not so bad anymore, like, not knowing that the murderer is among right. them, you know? <laughs> right. And now, and is this, like, I'm, it's been a while, I haven't rewatched any of the the first part of season one that we recapped last year, but this is his first real murder, yes? Yes, you know, yes, it is, yeah. Because before, I mean, the worst thing that he did prior to this was pee on, I think, Connor. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, he peed on the guy that he murdered. <laughs> but that was the, that was other than just being like generally an asshole. That was the the worst thing that he right, did. Right. And then I guess, you know, like calling for, for Charlotte to be killed. But like, yeah, so like this is the first time he's ever actually killed anybody. Before that, it was just like he was, you know, he was the scapegoat, the literal scapegoat yeah. for them. They like sort of purged him and with him, you know, all of the fucked up shit that happened in the first sort of few days on the ground and then kind of based on that reconfigured their little mini society so that it's Bellamy and Clark in charge. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, so this is the first time that we know of that he's killed anybody. Unless, I mean, he, you know, I, we don't know what happened to him exactly when he was out in the woods, but yeah. <laughs> and it's also really disturbing because like earlier in the episode, you know, he goes to help Connor and Connor's like, I put the noose around your neck and Murphy says bygones. And it's just sort of like, yes, and I believed it. <laughs> I wanted so badly to believe it. Okay, but like, so I don't like, so what do you think though? I mean, like, like if we had to like headcanon what was going on in Murphy's head? Like, did he just want Connor? Did he want to like, was it like a weird sort of like cask of Amontillado thing where he wanted to like lure Connor into a false sense of security and then like pull the rug out from underneath him when he was well enough to appreciate that he well, was there, being murdered? There were witness, there were witnesses there, right? Oh. I mean, wasn't there other people? Okay, yeah, okay. That's like, that's how I always interpreted it. It was just like, there's other people standing around and he's still trying to earn his place and like create... The sense that he's, that he's, you know, that he's here to make a good go of it, you know? So in front of other people, he is like, no, I'm not that guy anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, he he was like, I'm I'm establishing my place in the group again mode. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's, he's playing to the crowd and then, you know, and then once it's, but like, if it was just the two of them alone, I don't think he would have said it. But that, from what I recall of that scene, there's people standing around listening and I think Bellamy's there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so that's my that's how I always interpreted it was it's like he's that's more for the benefit of Bellamy okay got it got it not that it makes any difference with Bellamy you know who when he tries to help him right Bellamy wakes up is like <laughs> yeah get away from me <laughs> yeah <laughs> Bellamy knows how to hold a grudge <laughs> <laughs> none better yeah. well Clark maybe <laughs> well Clark oh I don't actually maybe better than Clark because Clark is really good at grudges until she does that flip until she has that moment of like okay we're good now that's and true I feel like Bellamy does not have that moment of okay we're good now Bellamy's like I hate you forever yeah. except under yeah. very specific circumstances I might consider not hating you anymore but like right right he doesn't forgive as easily no he does not yeah <laughs> not his gift yeah oh Murphy oh yeah so Raven should we talk about Raven now yes <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Raven, my brilliant queen. So I guess just to get it out of the way before we dive into the sort of the the bridge stuff, which I want to spend a good chunk of time on because it's such excellent television. But we do get, we get the sort of, the ending of this episode, we get the resolution on the love triangle, but we we do have to sort of in, endure a couple of <laughs> other moments of that sort of sprinkled yeah. throughout it, really from the beginning. You know, we get yeah. a lot of Clark watching Raven with Finn and a lot of, and even more of Raven watching Finn with Clark and Finn just just really being unable to cut the cord with either of them while also being totally unable to like not be a wank. I will give him credit for like the bridge <laughs> blowing up is his idea. Yes, you know, yes. Like, probably the best idea that he has like, ever had. And notice like last week he was Mr. Pacifist yeah. and now he's like blow up a bridge. Although I guess like he has yeah, that, like, and I, Bellamy where he's like, well, this is bomb for deterrence. And Bellamy is like, yeah, the dudes who built A-bombs built them to deter bombs, you know, like death too. So. Right. Well, well and, is that about and a Bellamy slope make- about having guns in the camp? Right. Been? Fucking hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like that Bellamy calls him out on that. But yeah. I also, you know, I feel like it's hard not to see Bellamy's point where he's like, look, we have an bomb. We yes. have to use it to do as much damage as possible. So, like, we have to use this bomb to kill people. We can't just yep. yes. blow up the bridge. We have, we have to take as many. That we are using, like, almost all the rest of our gunpowder to make, which means we can't yeah. make more bullets, which means we don't have many bullets to kill the grounders who are coming. So we need to kill some grounders so that we have enough bullets to, like, take care of the rest of them when they show up. You know, like, like Bellamy's thinking strategically towards, yeah. like, the long-term, like, blowing up this bridge is not going to stop them forever. You know, like, we have to think about, right. you know, this war is coming no matter what. Yeah, and and it won't, like, if they, if they use the bomb without making a dent in the actual size of the enemy forces, that's not a good use of resources. You know, like he, like Bellamy has to kind of think like a general and Finn is trying to, I I think, I think more, again, more for reasons that have to do with his own sort of perception of like that his way is right. Trying to find a way to do it without bloodshed, not necessarily because he thinks peace is possible, but because he's still, I think, sort of defining himself in so many ways in opposition to Bellamy. Like there's some sort of, there's some good kind of Finn Bellamy headbutting in this episode too. Yeah. It is interesting. So I we should we should mention, I think for those of you who aren't on Twitter, Aaron and I had a fascinating Twitter conversation last week with Kim Shumway. She co-wrote with Kira Snyder the episode uh, Unity Day that we reviewed last time. And she tweeted the link and we were kind of you know talking about it. And she mentioned that she was surprised that we or that that she was surprised that we had assumed that all of the writers were trying to get the audience to be sympathetic towards Finn at this stage in the game and she was like no there was like a lot of people in the writer's room who were like we know exactly who this guy is you know Mm -hmm. and um this was a long kind of conversation about you know the writer's perception of Finn and the way that Finn's actions fit into this sort of there are no good guy like that that even though his love for Clark is you know, is real, like it, those feelings exist, that the narrative not, does not intend us to absolve him of the terrible things he does because of that in a way where at least a couple of these times I had sort of genuinely felt like, am I supposed to be in support of this decision because he's doing it for lovey-dovey reasons and I'm not and I feel like 
like, am I just like a salty bitch? And Kim right, was right, like, right. nope, like that. <laughs> it is supposed to be that complicated. And so this was the first episode, of course, that I've watched since that. And so it was really interesting watching like watching Finn in this episode through the lens of knowing like, no, it's okay. Like you are not supposed to feel like Finn is your good guy hero. Like this yeah. is everything he does is really like very, very messy. Then it really, I thought it really sort of shines a light on just like his just his total fucking inability to pick a lane with either of those women. Mm-hmm. You know, like the mm-hmm. way that like the second Clark's back is turned, he's right there with Raven. The second Raven's back is turned, he's right there with Clark. And the sort of waffling, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just like, oh my God, <laughs> this fucking guy, you know. And, yeah. and it just really is impossible to disentangle that in this episode in particular, to disentangle that from the way he is sort of in relation to the actual kind of action of the plot. But I didn't mind it this time because I knew like, okay, it's supposed to be really gray. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm supposed to feel very what the fuck about this. And so like then I felt much better. <laughs> it does help. It does help to sort of be like, okay, you know, like he has a good idea, you know, in this episode mm-hmm. that, you know, that other people figure out how to execute but he has that you know has a good idea in you know alongside making a whole bunch of kind of like questionable decisions um and Mm. even like when he's standing by clark's you know when clark collapses and he carries her inside and puts her down and she's like you gotta just leave like this is you know like Mm. we know we know that they're coming they're going to attack us we just we can't be here you gotta get out of here and he's like i'm not gonna leave you know and it's sort of like Mm -hmm. okay like thanks mr romantic hero but that's actually like it's really stupid (laughs) stupid response you know right (laughs) well and and even even the fact that he runs over to catch her when she's falling despite the fact that it's already been established at this point that this is a contagious disease and raven is right there you know and so we watch that moment land with raven and i and i really like that that's the moment that comes back in their sort of final her final scene with him at the end later when she finally calls him out on all of these things that she's been seeing that he sort of is refusing to acknowledge like that with Clark he was willing to instantly put his life on the line you know like back when they when they still think of this disease as killing people you know like when they Mm -hmm, think that they could mm -hmm. all die he's willing Mm -hmm. to rush over there and catch Clark to keep her from falling even though he knows that there is a strong chance he could get sick and that if he gets sick he could die but like she says he didn't hesitate and then when Bellamy is like who's gonna put this bomb on the bridge you know which is a considerably less dangerous thing to do honestly like you're right like right yeah yeah Yeah. and then and then there's that long sort of horrible pause before he says like i'll do it and so that like how those two moments juxtapose with each other look to raven who's there to witness both of them it is just like you know it's just devastating because he still because he still can't admit it you know like when she when she tells him straight up yeah like because when she tells him you didn't hesitate all he can say is like i love you raven and it's like yeah but like but that's not enough you know like because because you don't because you're not saying that you're sorry you're not saying like you're right i realize i have feelings for somebody else let's end this like adult like you're not yeah you're not taking any emotional responsibility you're just like don't be mad well and also he's saying like you're telling me that my actions upset you and he's saying Mm -hmm. like but what's important is my feelings and my feelings are I right you You know which is like 
fuck you. <laughs> like, that's not what's important. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, so, so what do you want then? Like, who do you want to be with? You can't have two. Well, I mean, like, I guess you could, you know, like they could have a threesome, but they, I'm glad <laughs> that they don't. Ugh. You know, I'm glad that's not a solution. Yeah. No, no, no. But like, so it's like, like pick a, like, what do you actually want to happen here, Finn? Like, what's your end game scenario? Because you're still refusing to make a decision and you're still like hoping that somebody else solves this problem for you without you getting in trouble. And it's yeah. just really like the cowardice of it is just a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And like, I also thinking about too, going back to something that we've talked about with Finn that just kind of like bugs me is like, you know, I think the other thing about that when he hesitated versus when he didn't. And and we talked last week mm-hmm. a lot about like part of the issue with Finn is that he cares about Clark, but he doesn't necessarily care about anyone else. You know, like it's it's sort of Right, right. I mean, he cares about Raven, but not as much as Clark and he doesn't really seem to sort of, you know, he doesn't really seem to actually care about the rest of the group in any mm-hmm. really sort of real way. You know, he sort of he cares yeah. He cares, like, sort of on a theoretical level about not killing people, you know? Like, on a very sort of, like, abstract way, he's like, well, we shouldn't kill any people. Like, he doesn't want to kill the grounders on the bridge. He doesn't think people should die in general, but he's not actually, like, that concerned with the group. And I think one, you know, that's what kind of also shows up, too, in the way, like, when is Clark collapsing? He doesn't, when it's Clark, you know, he doesn't Mm -hmm. hesitate. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. The other thing about the moment when he hesitates when Bellamy's like, okay, who's going to place the can? Like, you know, part of it, like, and what this is what Raven sort of interprets it as, which I think, you know, which is not wrong. Part of it is that he's waiting for Raven or Bellamy to say, they'll do it, you know? Um, exactly, I guess, yeah. I, he's waiting, well, I guess he's waiting for Raven to say it because Bellamy's going to shoot. So he's waiting for Raven to say it. Right. He's waiting to see if she'll say it instead. That's the part that, that Raven focuses on. But the other part of that mm-hmm. hesitation is, like, this is a question about a risky thing that someone has to do to save literally all of their lives. Right. He's unwilling, he hesitates to put his life on the line to save all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this is the moment of, like, this is what we have to do so we all don't all get slaughtered by an army tomorrow. And he's like, I don't know if I want to do that. You yeah. know? So I think there's, there is something like really telling in the, in, I don't know, just like the way his priorities are stacked. Well, he's, he's so much in, in that way. And I hadn't thought about this until you were saying this just now, but in so many ways, he is the exact inverse of nearly every other character who who are willing to various degrees to make individual sacrifices for the good of their people and that's sort yeah. of a, an ethical question that comes back from time to time and he is willing to risk things and make sacrifices for one person mm-hmm. and he can't see the abstraction he's like the anti-Clark yeah you know he's like the complete yeah. opposite yeah. of her and so that's sort of becomes an interesting you know again this is a little whisper of the fin that he comes in season two with slaughtering that village where like the most I felt like chilling moment of his season two storyline is that split second where Clark appears on the ridge after he's like mowed down all these people and you see on his face that he like genuinely believes that she's going to be like happy to see him and that him saying he did this for her would somehow mitigate it like he genuinely believes on some level that that would make it okay not just in an abstract way but make it okay to Clark Griffin like the magnitude which which he doesn't understand her at all you know yeah and i think that that trait of his that sort of like chilling single-mindedness of focus about her specifically to the expense of 
nearly any other human life it is very dark it is not mm-hmm. charming i'm mm-hmm. i'm profoundly relieved that i'm not supposed to find it charming yeah, <laughs> so thank yeah, you kim seriously. thank you yes, for freeing yes. me from the burden of having to feel like i'm supposed to find this endearing in some way because i actually find it yeah. really toxic it's really disturbing and i think you know i think you're right like as the as the inverse of Clark and I think also of Bellamy, you know, particularly yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. season one, he's like sort of the inverse of Bellamy. Because like if you think about like given a situation where I mean, I guess this is the you know the trolley problem, right? Like, do you kill? Right, right, you, yeah. You're at this. You at the the switch. Do you pull the lever to kill one person that you know or like a crowd of strangers? It's not quite that because I think the question would be like in this case it would be something like do you kill? like one person to save your entire community, you know, so it's not like a crowd mm-hmm. of like random people as your community. You know, I think like for Bellamy and Clark, the, the answer would always be like, I will kill a person to save my people. Like, yes, that is, mm-hmm. that is the sacrifice I will make, you know, like I will blow up a fucking bridge and like try mm-hmm. to take out part of an army to save this group of people, my people. And Finn's answer is the opposite. He's like, no, I mean, it's more important to me not to be, not to kill people. Like, right. and everyone else, and then if we die, we die. But, like, the most important thing is that we don't have blood on our hands. Yeah. And the interesting thing to me is, like, I think one of the really fascinating things about season one that I really, like, that's so intriguing that kind of hooked me on the show. And I, and then we get, I think, the last time we really talked about this was in, what was, uh, for Contents Under Pressure 107, which is the one where they torture Lincoln, which is where, you know, one of the interesting things that this show does is sort of take... I think what would tend to be this obvious automatic answers that we would give probably to these kinds of ethical questions in our everyday life, you know, like, would you ever torture someone? It's like, no, obviously I would never torture anybody. Torture is wrong. It's always mm. wrong, right? Or like, would you ever murder someone? Would you ever kill someone? No, no, of course I would never kill anyone. Killing is wrong, period. You know, like you should never take mm-hmm. a life. And it kind of flips it on his head, on its head. And it sort of aligns you with, like really makes you understand the perspectives and identify with the perspective of, of characters who make the opposite choice. You know, characters who say like, mm-hmm. I would rather have blood on my hands and save my community, my people. Mm-hmm. And like, it's sort of, you know, I think the really interesting thing is on the flip side, it's sort of like Finn in this example, and I think there's probably other examples. I know there are other examples of the show, but I'm just not thinking of them off the top of my head. But I think Finn, interestingly, as a character, kind of shows like that the sort of easy, facile killing is always bad answer, that there's a kind of dark side to that too. That yeah. there are situations in which absolute sort of moral refusal to kill betrays a certain kind of callousness or lack of I don't know it's it's sort of like it 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 it, it almost like a lack of humanity because it sort of it mm -hmm. elevates a theoretical moral precept over actual lives you know in a in a weird way well and we get that in season three with the introduction of Luna and her sort of like moral rigidity where she's more like she's much less concerned about the sort of urgent reality of the crisis that they're presenting to her, which she's the only person at that moment that they think could possibly stop it. Then she is about the fact that she's like, no, I don't do that. You know, so I'm going to sort of like live over here on my little island and my little place where I make all the rules and I can make it so that, you know, like, yeah, like I'm the kind of person who does not do that. And that's more important to me than all of the grounders being killed by Allie, whatever. Right, you know? basically, she's like, everybody in the world can die and I don't care as long as, 
they do it over there and I don't have to be a part of it. You know, like her not getting more blood on her hands is more important to her than like literally the rest of humanity. And I think like there's also a really interesting inherent parallel there between Finn and Luna in that like in the black and whiteness of it, like Finn is either pacifist or he massacres a village, right? And Luna, same thing, right? She's a pacifist until the moment when she decides, you know, there's the switch flipped, you know, and she went from absolute pacifist to absolute, like, I will win the conclave so that everyone Everyone dies because fuck humanity. Like, if I'm going to kill, then everyone dies. That kind of, like, betrays the way, the problem with the absolute, you know, the problem with saying, like, no killing ever under no circumstances there's nowhere to go from there but okay fine killing all the time right so yeah so it is kind of interesting how yeah I never I never thought about that but like Luna and Finn there's like a lot of similarities in terms of them being both foil characters to our sort of main characters particularly Clark but also Bellamy in terms of the choices that they make and then also that sort of like absolute purity leads to absolute darkness you know in a kind of yeah interesting way Jordan and I have been watching, have been sort of semi-binging Crazy Ex-Girlfriends the last like week or so, which is awesome. It's a really, really great show. You should, have you watched it? Um, I've seen the first, I think, four or five episodes. I do really like it. Yeah. It's super good. You should keep watching. But anyway, so there's this one moment, there's this one episode in season one where Rebecca, the main character, decides like, decides she's going to make healthy choices because of a butter uh, commercial, which is like a whole running thing. So she's like, and she's, again, it's one of those really extreme things. She's like, she's, you know, she's like, going to make healthy choices. So she becomes a vegan and she decides she's going to be a good person. And I mean, anyway, so the end of the episode, her, her friend asks her, oh, how did, I thought you, you know, she's like eating a donut. And her friend is like, oh, I thought you were making healthy choices. How did that go? And she says, oh, it led to the most unhealthy choice of my life. And her friend's like, oh yeah, that's how it goes. And that's kind of how I feel about like Finn and Luna in a way where it's sort of like, I'm going to be the most healthy. It's like, nope, you're going to break down. You're going to do something really bad. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Making healthy choices. Well, in in a way, you know, Finn making unhealthy choices leads Raven to making the healthiest choice of her That's life. That's true. And yes. And the one of the best the moments of season one, of one of the like few true fist pumping moments of season one is when Raven dumps Finn. I was just like, yes. Oh my God. <laughs> I never yeah. thought that they would go there. And I was so happy that they did. Yes, I I love. I mean, we and we've talked about this before, you know, in in several different episodes about how how revelatory it was to watch the way that season one handles the love triangle in this completely un, unexpected and sort of never seen before on TV way that allows both of the women to retain all their agency. And it was sort of like, until it happened, there was a part of me that sort of believed, just because this is what you sort of expect to see on television, that the resolution of the love triangle is going to be what it always is, which is the boy is going to pick, you know, and he's probably going to pick Clark and Raven's going to be heartbroken and it's going to be a thing, you know, but like we're hardwired to expect that like, you know, when there's two women after one man, it's the man that has the power of choice. And so having Raven you know, have the like dignity and self-respect and agency to say, I reject you because what you're offering me is insufficient and I deserve better. You know, like it just makes me want to cry because it's so, first of all, it is such a profoundly important message for young women. Like the resonance of that moment is huge. Like if you are in a relationship with somebody 
who does not prioritize you or treat you with the, you know, respect that you deserve, that you get to walk. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I love that they get a moment to her. I love that seeing it normalized. And I love that the whole rest of the episode, Clark and Raven are partners. Like Raven being the one person who, who can tell her, I'm sorry about your mom, where Clark knows that she understands it because Raven's the only other person there who knew her. You know, so like it's such a beautiful, like the love triangle is just ground into dust by the end of this episode. Yes. Like Finn is Finn is being an asshole, you know, but like Clark and Raven are figuring out a way to build a relationship with each other that doesn't include him. That's about the two of them relying on each other's skills. So having it end with the sort of definitive taking off the necklace and handing it back to him. And he stands there and takes it like a chump. He doesn't even apologize. Like, Oh God. (laughs) But like, but, but giving that, giving that decision to Raven in a way where it's like, it's not pathetic. You don't feel sorry for her. There's no like, Oh, she's the second choice being rejected. She's just like, you are not giving me what I deserve and I deserve better than this. Here's your fucking necklace. I don't care what you do. And it's just like, oh, like it's just, it's so, like it's so important. Like it's one of the most, there's so many feminist moments in this show. There's so many amazing women who do so many amazing things. And this, honestly, I think just because of how kind of shocking it is to see this be the resolution of a, teen cw drama love triangle like this would i would put in the top five for sure oh yeah absolutely definitely like no no contest i would say and then like i think the other really heartbreaking thing about raven in this episode is her taking that bomb and going by herself and like basically because she was pretty much like okay fine i'll just die you know and i'm just like no raven no yeah (laughs) yeah when i I think I didn't put together until I see her, like when I first saw it, you know, I knew that she'd snuck off to plant the bomb. And then, you know, perhaps when she took it, she believed that she could get far enough away to make the shot from the right distance. And then when she's on the bridge, the whole bridge sequence, like you can't exhale until it's over. Like from the moment that she arrives, you know, on the bridge and she's woozy and then the fucking war drums the whole no, time. No, I know. And and the spliced in shots of the grounders running through the forest and you don't know how far away they are. I mean, like all of it, like you're just, it's so tense. And the moment where you realize she's not going to make it. So she just lays down and points the gun at it with a kind of like, like where you sort of watch yeah. her make that. All right. Yeah. Well, fuck it. I guess this is it. Decision. You're just like, oh my God, like Raven, my baby, no run, but she can't, you know? And so, yeah, one of, one of Finn's few redeeming moments in, you know, and racing over to scoop her up and, and save her. It's like, all right, I... I well, I will, okay, yeah. I will say this for Finn. I mean, it's an interesting moment because I was just thinking, like, Raven's willing to do the thing that Finn hesitated to do, which is she's willing to die to save everyone else. You know, like, she yeah. she does it. Like, she's like, all right, fine. Like, there's no other way around this. I got to do it, so I'm going to do yep. it. This is what it takes, yep. Yeah. I mean, I will say, <laughs> you know, in a kind of, like, Jeff Winger to Abba Nadir sort of moment of I see your value now. Um, 
<laughs> I will say this for Finn, <laughs> that like the thing about Finn is, you know, like Finn will always rush in to save the one person, you know, like he'll rush in to save Clark. And then of course, at the end of this, he does rush in to save Raven. So like, so there's, there's the upside to Finn's sort of approach to these things or point of view or whatever is like, you know, he'll, he'll just, he won't think twice. He'll run. Well, I guess he did kind of think twice at the beginning, but in this case, he doesn't think twice. He just runs in and he grabs Raven. So like Finn gets his little hero moment, but (laughs) (laughs) asterisk, huge asterisk on it, I say. Right. Well, but, but in, in comparison to the just sort of like soul destroying heroism of Raven in this episode, it's just like, boy, sit down. Yeah. Right. Seriously. (laughs) Like you don't even compare. I mean, in the, that whole, yeah, because that whole sequence, I mean, from from watching her, like, everything about the bomb, from the conception of it as an idea to the bomb going off as, you know, as she and Finn are, you know, are, like, huddled under that little overpass or hoping to God that they don't, like, get blown up, <laughs> you know, it is such a beautiful kind of breakdown of everything that makes Raven great as a character. Yes. You know, like, everything that we love about Raven is dialed up to 11 in that whole sequence from the way that her brain works and the precision of her scientific ability to just, like, the little, you know, the scrappy little details of, like, the, the X on the coffee can. Like, all of the, yeah, you know, yeah. like, the the way the way her personality comes through and the way that she makes things, you know, like, like the good bullets and the bad bullets can and the little signs, like, you know, no, don't. You know, and, and, and the panic on her face when she drops the backpack and thinks that she's like has she broken the jar has she ruined it like the pressure that she's putting on herself to do this the fact that she snuck off at night you know by herself to do it on her like everything about the very like, like well fuck it i'll do it myselfness of raven you know yeah 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 the 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 part of her that like secretly doesn't trust other people to not fuck up her plans. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know? It's like, all right, I cannot trust any of you to not fuck up this bomb. I very carefully designed, so fine. I will go do it Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like, I will do it myself. Yeah, yeah. boys are going to step up, you know, either because you're Finn or because you just, like, passed out on a tent. (laughs) Yeah. None of you are on my level. I'm just going to go do it. Yeah. Yeah, so just, like, I love, yeah. And And then just, you know pushing through you know as you know she's everybody is sick you know and 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 we've seen with some of the other characters you know they get sick and like they can hardly walk they can hardly move bellamy just like tips over you know he just like keels <laughs> over and, you know into the tent it's like all right so you just you just sit there kiddo you know and and raven is still you know trudging uphill for presumably hours because it's night when she leaves and it's morning when the bomb goes off yeah. you know and so she just like keeps on trucking like there's nobody on this show that pushes through misery and pain you know and like physical turmoil and suffering in the way that we see Raven do so often like she's just like that sort of put your head down and grit your teeth and do it because she knows like and I and I think that this ties in in a really really subtle way to, you know, the way that that she chooses to reject Finn. You know, like Raven's 
consciousness of how extraordinary she is is actually I find one of her most endearing traits and so that's why it makes it so hard to watch you know in seasons three and the beginning of season four when she's afraid that she's just broken you know like like when like watching her kind of hit those rock bottom depths as she's sort of trying to deal with her chronic pain and her injury is so shattering because the raven that we're introduced to is so defined by like She's the most extraordinary person any of them have ever met and she knows it and doesn't apologize for it. And that's kind of feminist revelatory too. Yeah. You know, that she's not like, oh, I'm like, she's not like given some other weakness to make her human, like worrying that she's not pretty enough because she's a nerd girl or whatever, you yeah. know? Yeah. Like she's just like, if I am dead, they're all fucked because nobody else can build a bomb. And so I got to just grit my teeth despite the fact that I have some kind of hemorrhagic fever and keep trudging up the hill to this fucking bridge you know and then like the way the camera sort of goes inside her sort of like her vision starting to blur and she's dizzy like we feel like we're inside her vision her perspective you know as she's like on the bridge and the ground is kind of starting to like everything's sort of shaky and we hear the war drums and we see the torches coming and then it's just like oh god 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 you know like that like that visceral sense of panic it's extraordinary just filmmaking like in in terms of the way that it puts you inside of how hard raven is fighting to get this one thing done and how much is riding on her ability to do it correctly. And the way in which she doesn't trust that anybody else will come through for her. You know, and I think that that, in its own sort of, I think, very deftly handled way, is a commentary on the Finn thing, too. You yeah. know, like, Raven doesn't really feel like anybody will be there to catch her if she falls down. Yeah. In a, in a sort of like physical, literal way, you know, the way she sees Finn rush to Clark's side and he doesn't rush to her side, but also in a sort of big macro community-wide way where it's like if something happens to Raven, like nobody's going to pick up the slack. And so, it, so it's really heartbreaking because I think she does suffer so much over the course of the show from both herself and everybody else putting so much pressure on her because she's the only person who can do what she does. But it's also, I think it's really beautiful that the show lets her own that and that by the time, you know, we end season four that we've really fully circled back to Raven kind of comfortably inhabiting her own brilliance and exceptionalism without apologizing for it or without feeling like it's minimized by the physical things that she can and can't do, you know, because I think it's, I think it's so important that we see her claim her power over and over and over and over and over again in the course of the show without apologizing for it. Like, I mean, like so many yeah. of the women do, but watching her do it, I think it's just particularly like, it just really lands in this episode very strongly. I felt like. Yes, I think so too. And I also think with Raven, it's like, it's especially well done and very, you know, deeply dimensional and sort of human because like, she's also allowed to be vulnerable and have some insecurity to even, even while being exceptional and knowing that she's exceptional, you know, so it's like, there's a sort of complexity that I think is granted her that like, you don't often see in female characters. Like, you know, if you have a badass female character who knows she's like a badass, usually she's not allowed to be vulnerable. 
or weak yeah exactly. or insecure or like or or whatever um and you know so to for for raven to sort of to be allowed to sort of reject finn in the way that she does that isn't angry you know like she doesn't that that's like sad that's like that's her also it's like her claiming her value but her also finally confronting the sadness of not being loved by finn the way that she wants to be of being rejected by him basically like it, it hurts really really badly that he doesn't love her the way that he does Clark, you know, and she knows that she deserves it, but it still doesn't sort of like minimize the sting of that kind of rejection. And so I think like the fact that she gets to have both, you know, is what makes it like yeah. so good. Yeah. And and the way that this show's reinforced so many times in the previous in the episodes that sort of immediately precede this, that her perception of her place in the world is still that Finn is all she has. Yeah. And so taking off that necklace is actually a huge moment of her sort of saying, like, if Finn is all she has, she would rather have nothing than have something that is insufficient. Like it's such a sort of profound commentary on the rejection of settling that I think yeah. is really beautiful like yeah. that she like yeah. like and it's still sad like it's still it's still totally devastating because it also sort of carries with it the ending of an era in her life and and probably some questioning of you know if their love was always this fragile was it ever what she thought that it was yeah you know, was he ever the person that she like like there's so much of her of her past in her childhood you know and her whole life is sort of shaped by him being her only person you know and so what it costs her to give that up like we see you know we see that cost and I think that's really it's really moving but it also I think is so profound and inspirational that she's willing to say like you're my only person and you're my whole family and still She's brave enough to do the really, really scary thing, which is to yeah. choose uncertainty and sort of accepting those feelings of like, and, and confronting the need to sort of like redefine herself and re-understand her life over living something that she knows is false, but that's comforting because it at least allows her to keep the illusion of, of what she had previously sort of valued about herself and believed about her life. Like she makes the scary, scary yeah. choice. You know, yeah, and it's and it's a vulnerable choice and it's a difficult choice, but she makes she makes the brave, courageous, scary choice that Finn could not do because Finn could not confront himself. Like in so many ways, it's like it's not really about confronting Raven; it's about confronting himself and the pain that he is causing her that he didn't want to deal with. Like he didn't right. want to he right. didn't want to have to see himself the way that that confrontation would ha make him see himself. You know, and she's the one who's finally like, okay, we need to like. We need to say, we need to say what's true, you know, and like, and stop trying to pretend. Yeah. And his desire to spare her pain feels in so many ways shaped by his desire to spare himself discomfort. His self discomfort and also to avoid confronting the fact that he did cause her pain, you know, like he, right. can, he can sort of continue to pretend that he's this like good guy who never hurt anybody. You know what I mean? And and this is sort of the moment where she like she says, okay, no, we don't get to we don't get to play this charade, you know, anymore. Like you hurt me, and the situation hurts me, so I'm going to end it. It's like it's a great moment because it's like it's a moment of tremendous vulnerability and sadness and hurt and pain, but also like in that vulnerability and that 
sadness and that pain is, you know, power and value. And so like, it's really great to see that kind of affirmed. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love that she gets to have, have that agency. This makes me think of one of my favorite Dear Sugar quotes. She has a column where somebody writes in and asks her like what pieces of advice she'd give to her younger self. And the whole essay is just sort of like bullet point, you know, sort of like advice to a young woman. And, and one of the ones that just always sort of has stuck with me and I have it on a poster that hangs in my house is be brave enough to break your own heart. And I love like just the simplicity of that and how much is like contained in that. But I feel like that like the courage to make a choice that you know is going to pain you because you understand that on the other side of that is something really important, but you have to push that pain to get there is not a strength that Finn has, you know, and the women on this show all have that, you know, like Raven has it and Clark has it and Abby has it. Like they're all willing to make choices that cause huge pain or huge danger and risk to themselves because they know that that's the thing that you have to do to get the thing that you need to get. And Finn just does not, like, Finn does not have that in him. You know, the choices that he makes aren't shaped by that. So it just makes that moment, the final moment on the bridge, you know, where where you're watching Raven, like, you know, she drops her backpack and gets down on her knees and, you know, and aims for the scope of the rifle. And she's just like, all right, here, this is where it's going to end. You know, like, I got one shot. I can see them coming, you know. And you're just like, oh, I mean, it's so, like, it's scary and it's tense and it's stressful and it's action packed and it's devastating. And it's like everything that you want television to be in that moment, because we're so attached to Raven and her courage and her vulnerability and just sort of how like remarkable and extraordinary of a character she is. And so the fact that, you know, the team rallies and comes in to save her, you know, that Jasper shows up, that Monty shows up, that Finn shows up, you know, and they all they all make it home okay. Feels like this whole sort of like you know, like full body exhale moment of relief. You know, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially because you know she made the choice that she made, believing that nobody was coming for her. You know, believing that nobody had her back, and you know, and so the fact that Finn showed up when he was needed, and that Jasper showed up for her, and Monty showed up for Jasper, you know, and that they got it done together. Is a, is a nice little sort of reminder that Raven's perception that she is alone is is already not the reality, you know? And, yeah. and it makes yeah. sense why she feels that way. And it's definitely, like, like, connected to the betrayal of Finn, the loss of Finn, the way that has sort of shaped her. But it's really beautiful and moving to, you know, to sort of that the episode ends on that note of that people did have her back, you know, that she didn't have to, she didn't have to sacrifice herself to save everybody because, you know, the cavalry rode in and, you know, and helped save her and they got it done together instead of her having to do it by herself, you know? So I just, I, oh, so good. So good. (sighs) So good. Oh, Raven. She's an extraordinary character. She really is. She's just one of the all-time best girls on television. I think she I've really ever seen. is. Yes. No, I totally agree. I definitely want to talk about the Blake siblings for a while because I think this yes. is this is like a really good Blake siblings episode. Yeah, let's do let's do Link Tavia and Blake's real quick. Yeah. Let's cover that. Yeah. 
Yeah, because there's like sort of mostly like a kind of like a separate storylines thing for Bellamy and Octavia and then they kind of come together at the end. But but there is some interesting sort of like development of their relationship. But yeah, Linktavia <laughs> sort of remains... Yeah, so I... So we were talking about this just a little while ago on, on Twitter. I I am on record as being a latecomer to the Linktavia ship. I, I started to like it around middle of season two and then by the time... We hit season three, I was totally smitten, you know, just in time to have my heart ripped out of my body. But in season one, I was not on board with it really at all. Like maybe a little bit at the end, but even then, like not really. And this is one of the episodes where I just, that sort of reinforced me rewatching it, why I did not like it, why I did not yeah. lose that relationship. You know, like yeah. there, there is something really, like if we if we sort of put aside our knowledge of everything that happens after, you know, and what their relationship evolves into and who Lincoln becomes by the time in season three that he's, you know, this hero that we all love and adore and miss terribly, who he is now and who the grounders are now, in that context, there's something very sinister in the way that he has sort of like latched onto and singled her out, am I supposed to find it romantic that he wanted to save her from death and destruction and, you know, and, and the grounders coming in to attack her people instead of actually like telling her, you know, what was going to happen, you know, like, like, and, and him like wanting her to like run away with him. It's very much like Finn. Yeah. I noticed that it was like, this is Finn stuff. Yeah. Same sort of, like, decision-making. Yeah, and he doesn't stay that person, but there's a lot of removal of her agency. Yeah, there's a lot of removal of her agency where he, like, he he wants to, he's planted the flower to get her to come to him to try to get her to leave. You know, he's he's trying to get her to do what he thinks is best without really fully explaining to her the situation until she makes him. Um, also, like, you know, it's very thin in terms of, like, he's very fixated basically only on Octavia he doesn't really seem to he doesn't really care what happens to her people he doesn't really care what happens to his you know he tries to sort of frame it as like these other people are going to do their war thing and we got to get out of here and he doesn't mm-hmm. really acknowledge he's he's sort of putting aside or trying to ignore that Octavia has relationships you know with mm-hmm. like she's not a fan of her people per se but like she has relationships and there are people that she right, cares that's about her brother. that's her brother yeah like and her friends you know and I think I mean, I always sort of felt the same, like, am I supposed to think it's a romantic? Now that, you know, after having had that conversation with Kim Shumway last week, I, and, and, and actually with, like, how, how things go in this episode and how they go the rest of the season, I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think ultimately, you know, Lincoln's sort of plan here and his attitude, I think, is ultimately set up to be sort of undercut, you know, because... Because Octavia, right. at the end of the episode, does say, I'm not going. You know, I have to stay here with my people. And Lincoln also doesn't go. You know, he winds up coming back and helping not just Octavia, but everyone, right? So I think we might be supposed to think that it's romantic because he's like, they love each other or whatever. But it's not, he's not right. You know, like he's making a decision right. based on like love and fear. And Octavia is the one who kind of has the revelatory moment where she realizes, okay, no, like that's not the correct, the right thing to do. It's what I want to do. I wish in a perfect world I could just sort of disappear with you, but this isn't that world and I have other, yeah. you know, people that I care about. So so I do think that sort of like Finn, we're meant to sort of see that as not really, as being like an understandable impulse, but not really like one that we're supposed to 
approve of per se, you know? So that's kind of how I feel about it in this rewatch. Although again, still, I just, the way this shot is so like hyper romantic, I think we're supposed to think it's kind of like, oh no, star-crossed lovers. And I'm still the sort of yeah, like, that's yeah. still kind of like, I don't, I don't, I never really bought that particular part of it. So, Um, nothing against Ricky Whittle or Marie Avdropoulos, who are very beautiful, and it's lovely to see their beautiful faces smushed together, but, (laughs) um, yeah, but I think it is, like, from that perspective, you know, the other thing about Lincoln right now is that, like, particularly in this season, I think Lincoln is more... You know, one reason why he's, like, so underdeveloped is that he's more, as a character, really there for Octavia to sort of develop in conjunction with or in contrast with or whatever than anything else. And so, like, I feel like that the important thing about that is really, like, Octavia needed to be put in a position where she had to choose. You know, she's been sort of, like, trying to play both sides. She's been trying to, like, keep her her relationship with Lincoln and also, you know, keep her other foot in the camp. And, like, this is the crisis point, and she had to reach a point where she had to choose one or the other, you know, the sort of device that pushes her to finally have to, like, definitively make that choice is, like, Lincoln's leaving, you know, like, you can't stay here and keep doing both things. You have to pick a lane, and this is finally the thing that makes her, like, make that choice, ultimately. I'm realizing as something just sort of clicked in my brain when I I was hearing you say what you just said, that I think... I'm sort of realizing now, I think the kind of running thread in a lot of the the characters in this show that I don't like as much or the the sort of relationships that I have the hardest time, you know, getting invested in is when you have a character who only exists in relation to one other character, usually yes. as a love interest, you know, yes. like... Yep, Finn's agreed. Finn's relevance to the story in season one is only is almost exclusively about Clark and Raven and that is it. And so we get moments where it's like there's potential for substantive Finn and Wells that isn't delivered. There's potential for Finn and Lincoln as like the sort of misguided pacifist bros from opposite sides that could be fascinating. We never get that. Or even like Finn and Bellamy like like really having it out. Yeah, yeah, without the triangulation through Clark, like actually just confronting each other, you know? Yeah, like like one good in-depth Finn and Bellamy scene with no girls in it would change a lot of things, you know, and that doesn't exist. And th- and that's partly how I feel about Lincoln in season 1. That's why I found Lexa more interesting in season two and less interesting in the beginning of season three where the relationship was sort of almost exclusively about Clark. That's why I really wanted more for Gina. I was frustrated that she was so underdeveloped. Yeah, like the best part, the best moments that Gina ever had were when she was bickering, when she was like, you know, sassing with Raven. Yeah, it was like bartender Gina. Yeah. This little slice of, you know, this person who has this sort of social job where she's like, yeah, like where she's like, the Raven and Abby and Gina scene in in the beginning of three yeah, and one. It's like yeah, that's yeah. the Gina that I wanted, you know. And then that goes away, and it's purely about like she's there to sort of advance Bellamy's arc, and yeah. And so I I feel like when when a character exists only to like either to be a love interest or to 
interact exclusively only with one other person, I sort of shrug and, and it's when the camera pulls back. Like, like I think the reason that this clicked for me just now was because I'm realizing when I started to really care about Lincoln was when he began to develop or began to sort of see and understand his relationships with other people who weren't Octavia. You know, when Indra mm-hmm. and Lincoln's relationship comes into the picture, when we get more context about Lincoln's relationship with Tree Crew, and when we meet Nico. Yeah. Like when Lincoln and Clark are on the same team in so much of season two in the battle against Matt Weather, when we start to really get yeah. Lincoln and Bellamy, you know, in a way that's not orbiting around Octavia. When Lincoln becomes part of the team and interacts with Abby, with Lexa, with Indra, with Nico, with Bellamy, with Clark. That is, you know, Reaper Lincoln and that whole storyline that has, again, nothing to do with Octavia. You know, that's when he becomes a real three-dimensional character and stops becoming exclusively a love interest. And Finn never, to me, never really crosses that event horizon into being a person who is shaped by... Any relationships that aren't the two girls that make up the other two prongs of the love triangle. Like, yeah, he has sort of some plot utility around that, but we never see him substantive meaty material with anybody else. And other characters who are introduced that way or who do have that, they do get those things, you know, Mm -hmm. and Finn doesn't, which is why it's hard for me to care about him in the way that I come to care deeply about Lincoln by the time we get to season three because you know Lincoln has a relationship with Kane and Sinclair Lincoln Mm -hmm. has a relationship with Lexa and Indra and a role in the sort of political landscape and he has diplomatic information he's strategically important because of the things that he knows like all of these things you know and like the way he becomes sort of the locus for the sort of Pike's anti-grounder sentiment, like all yeah, of that stuff, yeah. all of those layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And Octavia is there for that. And she's part of that. But she isn't the reason for his existence, you know, like yeah. it just took them a little longer to find him. And so here, so at this stage in the story, when he has none of those layers yet, it's like his only plot utility is to be the thing that Octavia that, that is the other choice for Octavia to tempt her into running away from her people, mm-hmm, you know? Exactly. And, and so he exists more as, like, an extension of her teenage rebellion plot in yes. some ways. Like, he's the bad boy that she's going to run off and hook up with, and she considers it. And another example of that is, I mean, that's kind of what's very much what Ilion's role was for Octavia in season yes. four. And I think another reason why I had a hard time, like, really ever latching onto or caring all that uh-huh, much uh-huh. about Ilion is because like, I mean, other than the sort of flashback at the beginning, which was really effective, you know, he really, he was just there to be her sort of love interest to sort of get her from point A to point B to point C. Yep. And, and yeah, so like it's, so Ilion in season four, I feel like it's kind of has a lot of the same and, and Octillion, you know, I, I never really like got invested in that relationship. And I think it's for the same reason why I struggle with Linktavia in season one. Because he's just kind of like, hi, I'm a cipher. Yeah, you're here to perform a plot function that only has to do with Octavia and with her arc and with plot beats that we feel like we can't hit unless it's a romantic relationship. Exactly, exactly. Or that or that plot beats that are that you can get through faster 
if you can just use the right, shortcut right. of sex. Like, oh, we're banging now and we're in love. Okay, boom, done. You know, like, is it like sort of romantic relationship or sexual relationship as an almost like shorthand for a bunch of stuff that they just didn't have time or didn't take the time to develop? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right. You're totally right. That's That's definitely what it is with Lincoln in season one. Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so it all lines up. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's an important function because, like, of course, Octavia comes back and tells them that, you know, the army is coming so they know why this is happening and they know to sort of get ready and that kicks off the, the bomb plot. The Blakes have still been sort of, like, bickering and taking shots at each other throughout this episode where Bellamy finds out that Octavia was the first to find Murphy and, like, that really, like, heartbreaking scene where he sort of goes from, like, checking on her, worried on, about her to like jabbing her about Lincoln, you know, like looking at your boyfriend's book or whatever, I thought was really kind of like perfect encapsulation of this like really sort of complicated, intense place they're at through most of the episode where they still really love each other. You know, like Octavia can't leave without, without warning her brother, but she still thinks that she can leave him. You know, she's still mad at him, but she can't imagine. She's, she's upset when, when Lincoln says this is happening. She's like, you weren't going to tell us you know like my brother's in there like I can't yeah. just let my brother die you know it's like to start in this place where she's sort of like I can't let my brother die but she thinks she can leave and Bellamy is still in a place of sort of like he's very concerned for her but he still feels very defensive they're at odds with each other but still care about each other but they're sort of like locked into this pattern where they actually cannot express their care for each other to each other you know like they're still too much just like we're mad okay like oh my god I'm worried uh anyway I you know we're still mad at each other and so when we get to that bit at the end where, you know, where Bellamy finally comes inside and is sick and Octavia is treating him, like, I think that's why I like, I always cry every single time because it's like this beautiful moment where like all the bullshit is cleared away. You know, it's like the shit's hit the fan. Like this is, you know, this is the darkest moment that they've had yet. And like, and Bellamy, I think, did not expect Octavia to do that. Like he's, he's scared. And like, I also just like, it's a beautiful moment of like, Bellamy's trying to be, he's been trying all episodes to like, keep it together, keep control, you know, like, keep everyone like working, keep them, keep them focused on the fact that like, even though everyone's sick around them, they still have to keep an eye out for the grounders, like, trying to sort of be, you know, what, what like what Jasper thinks he is like, okay, I'm Bellamy, you know, I'm tough, we're gonna go do this thing, we're gonna blow up grounders, and I'm not scared. And for him mm -hmm. to have that moment of vulnerability with Octavia to say, like, I'm scared, you know, like, I'm afraid. Yeah, that moment of just like, He's, like, so exhausted he can't not just sort of admit, like, I'm a kid, too, and I'm terrified. You know, I don't know. It's just, like, such a beautiful moment. I think it's so important for Octavia to kind of, like, be able to have this moment of seeing him, like, this is her big brother. Like, she sort of thinks of him as inv invincible. And for him to be, like, I'm scared and afraid and I don't know what to do. And for her to be, like, okay, we're going to flip roles and I'm not going to let anything happen to you. I just get really emotional. I just think it's such like a beautifully written, beautifully <laughs> acted, beautifully executed scene. You know, it's like so emotionally true in that moment. They just like, it's sort of like the walls come down and they're able to kind of really just sort of like latch on to their deepest feelings for each other, which are, you know, love and care, despite all the bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And I love the juxtaposition of that with like, for a moment, we do see Octavia, like Octavia does tell Lincoln, like, I'm going to come with you. And then she does it. Like, she thinks about it. She wants to. And then she kind of has to confront this moment of like, wait, what do I actually care about? You know, and Clark goes through this a little bit too, I think, in the beginning of season three. You know, like the the temptation to run away from your problems is very alluring. 
you know, like to go like run off with your boyfriend and leave all of the hard stuff behind and not have to make those difficult decisions and to break free from, you know, the people that make you feel pressured, you know, to do a certain, like I, like it's totally possible why she would, you know, why that would be tempting to her. But then, but then the, when you see the depth of that intimacy that she has with Bellamy, that makes you feel like, okay, so she's realized like she can't, you know, like she can't leave. She knows she's to stay with him. She knows, you know, like this is, he's her people, you know? And so in some ways it's sort of like a light little bit of foreshadowing. It makes their separation at the end of the season when she does leave with Lincoln with Bellamy's blessing to keep her safe, Mm -hmm. like even more devastating because you see, because, you know, by the ending of this episode, it feels like she has made a decision that as tempting as that offer of escape, you know, to go find Luna is that she can't leave Bellamy, that she has to stay here. Yeah. He needs her. Yeah. You know, as much as she's always needed him, you know, to protect her, to keep her safe. But what I love about that moment is the way that it sort of, like you said, like it inverts it so that we see like that he needs her Mm -hmm. too. Like he's also not whole if she's not there. Mm -hmm. And I think watching that kind of click for her makes you feel like she sort of planted her flag and she's staying at her side. And so establishing that, you know, decision on her part, you know, now knowing that we're three episodes away from them being separated without having any idea if they'll ever see each other again is just like, oh, yeah, my heart. Well, I think also, I mean, like, it means a lot to Octavia to have it affirmed because, like, Bellamy would never, like, admit to her, you know, that, like, he needs her. Like, it's, it's sort of, there's a kind of, like, one-way-ness to how their relationship dynamic has been that this finally allows it to reverse. And I think, like, that's really important to Octavia for her to be like, okay... His overprotectiveness is not about control, but rather like a weirdly, you know, miss sort of or sort of twisted version of how he needs her to. And that he can finally just come out and say it, you know, like he can finally just like be honest, you know, and say that, that he that he needs her and he's glad that she's there. And like she's that, that he just like he just loves her, you know, like that she's just important to him. Yeah. So like that, I think that's just like such a lovely little moment that they finally managed to have I but I do love also I feel like as a sibling as a little sister especially like I do love that even in the midst of this very touching sort of connection moment you know <laughs> they we still like they're still siblings she still sasses him when she, when she says you know I will never let I won't let anything happen to you and he says that's what I said yeah. to you when you're born and she's like yeah you told me a thousand times <laughs> it's like she's that just like, fair is like yep, she's still yeah. a little sister you know like that is absolutely like if you have siblings you know like you're not gonna pass up that moment to be like oh my god shut up I know you've told me the story a thousand times I know you're dying but still shut up <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah I just yeah I think season one they really get the Blake siblings oh, right god. and it makes me very happy I'm very attached to them you know, it's funny, like, interestingly, I think in this episode, Clark, what Clark does in this episode is mostly plot stuff, it seems like. You know, she's, like, making decisions that sort of motivate things. But, like, we do sort of see emerging, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning in terms of, like, if we think about the last four, these last four episodes as, like, a four-part finale, I think we do see sort of solidifying the kind of, like, dynamic, like decision-making leadership dynamic that we get between Bellamy and Clark and then also between Bellamy, Clark, Finn, where we have Clark as the sort of like final decision-maker, you know, 
Um, and Bellamy is the kind of like person who executes the plan that they sort of debate and then that she sort of decides on. And then I think another interesting thing that we that we see, and I think, and this happens a little bit before, but I think it's like sort of emerging as a pattern in a way here that it hadn't earlier in the season is like, so last in the last episode in Unity Days, Clark agrees to go with Finn and then she immediately goes and gets Bellamy and says, bring guns um, without telling Finn. So we get this, I think one of the first times we so overtly see Clark is willing to sort of conceal information if not directly lie to people in order to sort of do what she thinks is best and then again in this episode it's sort of like key moment where you know she tells Bellamy she will keep Octavia safe she won't get away and then she immediately turns around and tells Octavia I need you to go you know sneak out and find Lincoln like that her willingness to sort of conceal information slash like lie to Bellamy because she knows that his reaction to knowing the truth would sort of get in the way of her plan like that's something that that becomes a really sort of I think like a cornerstone aspect of Clark's personality and her decision making and like the way that she goes about things going forward through the rest of the seasons but it's sort of solidified here I think. Yeah the sort of strategic management of who gets what information to allow her to do what she needs to do yeah and and who she can trust with what at what time and how things are sort of the kind of Slytherin-y management of, you know, of who gets to know what so that she can just sort of barrel them through and do her thing. Yeah, you know, exactly, I, I think exactly. Is, yeah, yeah, very much so. And and the sort of rise of Clark, the canny strategic thinker, whereas mm-hmm. a lot of the sort of shortcomings she has as a leader early on in, in season one have to do with her being sort of like, Clark the blunt instrument you know like Clark who's right like, right, right. <laughs> but but I'm right why won't why won't you just do it <laughs> like right and this is Clark won't... sort of figuring out like okay I'm right I have a long-term plan what are my yeah. you know immediate obstacles that I have to get around and so like you know so she's very canny and being like Bellamy will like freak out and delay things if he knows that Octavia is being put in danger. So don't tell Bellamy that Octavia is going to be in danger. And then she does the same thing right. again in season two when she doesn't tell yeah, Bellamy. Yeah, in Tondisi. Tondisi, mm-hmm. yeah, same thing again. Um, you know, and like she does that to other people as well. You know, it's a sort of like a pattern that she does kind of over and over again. But this is like sort of the right. first, this is like the previous episode, I think is the first kind of like major instance of it. And then it happens again. And I think that's this is sort of like the pattern emerging. Yeah, it's like she's realizing that she can't that she can't always get done what she needs to get done by arguing people into agreeing with her. Like that she can't yeah. she's she's not always going to be able to convince people that she's right. And so sometimes she has to sort of find a sneaky backdoor workaround where it's like mm-hmm. she'd prefer to do it the sort of blunt and out in the open way, but she's beginning to learn yeah. you know, that part of managing people means that sometimes you have to sort of take into account the fact that like this person disagrees with me. We don't actually have time to sort of sit down and hash this out for three mm-hmm. days and come to a consensus. I need to just do a thing. And so watching her sort of beginning to learn how to circumvent obstacles in that sort of really crafty way is really interesting because I think because you're right it's like this is the first time we really get to see she's making intentional decisions about even the people who are sort of who at this stage are still kind of all on her squad you know all members of her team you know Bellamy and Finn are like two of the people that she's closest to that those are like her two like 
Yeah, her, like, yeah. one in two guys, basically, yeah. you know? Yeah, like, Bellamy's, like, her, like, leadership partner, you know? And and so, mm-hmm. and this comes back in a big way in season four um, with the list, and then with her and, or, well, I guess it was her, according to Jaha, uh, Jaha planned to sort of steal the bunker, mm-hmm. and also to kidnap Bellamy to get him in the bunker, you know? So, yeah. so this is a sort of, like, this is what, in extremis, you know, like, this is, this is what Clark does, is like, all right, what, yeah. what, sh- what, like, shady shit do I have to do, you know, or conceal to, like, get this thing, these things lined up the way that they need to be in order for things to go the way that I need them to. Who is in my way, and even if I love them, how do I get them out of my way exactly. to do the thing that I need to do? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And she's, like, indiscriminate, you know, she does it to... Finn and then she does it to Bellamy she does it you know later on she does it to her mother you know she does it to yeah it it, it isn't a sign of how much she does or doesn't care about somebody no. it's just like this is the way that she strategically removes obstacles and sometimes it is you know and and it looks very different sort of depending on where you're standing and depending on who the person is that she's doing this to but it is yeah it's something that becomes I think more and more and more inescapable of a character trait and and this really is where we sort of start because she isn't she doesn't begin like this you know like she doesn't start the show as this kind of a leader she sort of evolves into that once she realizes that other people are as stubborn as she is right 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 yeah and she's like all right well like what's the fastest way from a to b lying right (laughs) don't tell bellamy yes that's what we're doing (laughs) yeah Yeah, there's a certain sort of like ruthless pragmatism to it um Mm -hmm. yeah that i do i have to say that this is one of my favorite bellark episodes of season one just because of like i mean there's not like a ton of stuff but like the little moments that they Mm -hmm. have i just love so much you know when she comes out when he comes to check on her when she comes out of the drop ship and he's like, do you have enough food and water? She's like, some medicine would be nice. And they have that little sort of like gallows humor joking moment. And then, you know, when he wakes up after he's been sick and he looks for her in the hammock and then she comes over, you know, with the water and is like, his like little scared, vulnerable face when he asks if she's okay. And she's like, yeah. And he's like, okay, good. You yeah. know, you can just like sort of imagine him being like, <laughs> I cannot fucking imagine trying to run this place without, <laughs> without you. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and they're like little sort of chat about Murphy. It's like little moments, but I don't know. I just like, they're some of my favorite little moments because I just feel like we get these nice little moments of, you know, just like joking around, of like checking in with each other, of sort of mutual concern. And I don't know. It makes my little shipper, I think they're underrated. My my little shipper heart loves them very much, although they don't necessarily get a ton of play. And they're not like really overtly shippy or romantic or whatever, but I don't know. I just, I find them precious. <laughs> it is really good content yeah i mean yeah. it is it's there's bellamy is very endearing in this episode which is sort of yeah. funny given like how you know sort of dramatic and violent the episode is but <laughs> it's just like oh oh bellamy <laughs> you precious peanut yeah he is he's so precious he's i mean he's a dramatic hoe but you know like he's right. <laughs> he's a precious peanut of a dramatic you know he's just like yeah. from the beginning of being like ah murphy ah, rah, rah, rah. <laughs> like how dare you come back <laughs> To remind me of my mistakes. <laughs> I do feel like a lot of Mur- of, of uh, Bellamy sort of like out of proportion anger at Bellamy or at uh, Murphy is sort of like, I'm trying to be better and you're coming back to remind me of the asshole I was at the beginning. Get out of here. <laughs> you know, that way Seriously. that's like very, very understandable. You know, it's like very, very real way where it's sort of like, 
you never feel more aggressive hate and anger than for the people who remind you of the time when you were a shittier person than you want to be. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, those are, like, the people that make you sort of, like, remind you of your worst version of yourself are always the people that you hate the most. And I feel like that's definitely Murphy for Bellamy in this episode. You know, he's like... Absolutely. You know, like, he he doesn't want to... Like, Clark even says... When he says to Clark, like, you know, have you forgotten Charlotte? And she says, you know, we were as much to blame for Charlotte as he is. Like, I think that's the thing that Bellamy is still trying not to think about. You know, like, he's trying not to... He's like, no, I can't psychologically handle that. (laughs) That's the one thing, fucked up thing I did that I felt like I could blame on someone else. (laughs) You know, so I think there's, like, some resistance there on Bellamy's part, but yes. The other, like, dramatic moment that I just, like, love in ways that I shouldn't is when... You know, that one kid points a gun at Clark and he, like, walks up behind him and smacks him in the face with the butt of his own gun. I'm just like, that is really, it's inappropriate how much I enjoy that moment. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's also sort of like, that is perhaps the most dramatic way you could have handled that, Bellamy. You could have just, like, walked up and grabbed the gun out of his hands, but, you know. Knocking him out also works, I guess. But if there's there's chance to perform a dramatic scene, he's going to take it. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is the most dramatic way I could possibly handle the situation is basically the question right. that Bellamy asks himself every day. <laughs> While pretending not to be a dramatic person. Yeah. Tag yourself, yeah. I'm Bellamy Blake. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> ah, uh, so, yeah. Good stuff. I just love it. <laughs> uh sam so this week we got one of aaron's favorite blark moment episodes next week we get one of my favorite cabbie episodes 111 the calm aka the post explosion cabbie snuggling and that legitimately great if you can ignore the fact that the actor is a jerk wick and kane scene their sort of mini plot which i just absolutely adore so i'm super yes. super hyped for that one yes isn't the next episode the one where raven and and bellamy do it as well or is that the one yes after that? okay yes raven yes. and raven That's and fun. bellamy do it and and then we get all the sort of post-explosion arc yes. stuff and then is this the anya finn clark thing or is that the next one i think it starts in this one and then it it's like the next two episodes because the next one is that's they, what I thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This that's like where they get kidnapped, and then I think the following yes. episode is the one where they where they save the girl and stuff. Yeah, right, right, right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Cool. Anyway, excellent content. And I mean, yes. everything. All the episodes of the season are going to be great. They're all good episodes. So they are. Yeah. So we're very excited to yell about that one in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um. And yeah. So we will see you all back here soon. Indeed. Bye. Bye.